0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. We're also on Facebook. We ask you to subscribe to our feed. Why not? New episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Tune in or over at nationalreview.com. You can click the podcast page, listen, leave reviews where possible, help others find the show. Also, head over to patreon.com slash politicalbeats for our Patreon account. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level support for, well, voting privileges from time to time and just telling us you like us. Eh, it's, it's okay by, by us. Mid-level for early access and higher audio quality in those files. And also our upper-level bestest friends. Early access, the higher audio quality, the monthly exclusive content shows, the remastered episodes, playlists, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine. I am just reclining here on the couch in my purple jacket, my puffy shirt, my bouffant hairdo. And Scott, let me tell you, other than those high heels, I'm wearing nothing from the waist down except a (laughs) codpiece.
0: That's a mental picture we all never thought we'd enjoy But here we are together at Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. Our guest is returning to the program after a successful stint. I just checked the date this morning, guys. It was four years ago. We've been at this a while. Uh, For Steely Dan. And now... Eli Lake is back, contributing editor of Commentary, a fellow at the Clements Center in at uh, UT Austin, and a host of a new podcast that will debut very soon on the Nebulous Network called "The Reeducation" with Eli Lake. And you can find him on Twitter too. He is at Eli Lake. Eli, thanks so much for joining us once again here on Political Great to Beats. Be here.
2: For for, for, for a, a diminutive man and a towering artist.
0: <laughs> We're talking about Prince, and we'll get to Prince in a moment. We first allow Eli to uh, let us know what he's all about, What he does a commentary, preview the new podcast. Eli, tell us what you're all about.
2: Uh, well, I, I, I was a longtime columnist with Bloomberg. Uh, I write about national security, foreign policy, politics, um, I have the cover essay in the current, uh, edition of commentary on, uh, how the world has changed after Putin's second invasion of Ukraine and what we should do to change along with it. Uh, I recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and I'm looking forward to sort of launching my own podcast like you guys, uh, since it seems like everyone else is doing it and, uh, <laughs> I am a big fan of podcasts, so...
0: May you have half the success that we have had. <laughs> not double, double the success that we've had. There you go. Uh, Eli Lake is here with us to talk about uh, part one of three parts of a massively prolific artist, uh, an artist that is one of uh, Jeff's all-time favorites and Eli's all-time favorites. I am by uh, innumerable measure the least informed person on this show today about our featured artists but I'm willing to learn much like Bill Murray and Harold Ramis in stripes. We're talking about Prince and we turn the floor over to Eli Lake. Once again, tell us why you love Prince so much, how you got into him and why people should care about this music he made.
2: Well, I I mean, I love Prince because he's probably one of the most important artists of modern pop, R and B rock. I mean, he's a towering figure. Um, I think casual fans don't realize how, how much he contributed to creating the sound of the 1980s, both in writing songs for other artists and the innovations on albums like Dirty Mind in 1999 and Purple Rain um, that really kind of showed what you could do with computers um, in terms of making this music. And, um, you know, his music kind of, it endures to this day the range of what he's able to do is amazing. And I can, I'll tell you the story of how I really got into him And every, you know, I was born in 1972, so Prince is inescapable if, you know, in my, you know, as I'm 10 years old when 1999 comes out. It's on the radio, everybody knows about it. I'm 12 when Purple Rain comes out. Um, it's part of the sort of background, but, you know, after my first first year of college, I had a summer job where I met one of my closest friends uh, named Darren Spielman. And we were painting houses for something called College Pro. I don't know if that still exists.
0: Oh, I remember those signs. They were everywhere. Yes.
2: <laughs> and we would have these debates as you're kind of, you know, out there painting houses and stuff. And the debate, I would always, you know, I was of the view that Stevie Wonder was this great artist. And he said, no, it's Prince is amazing. And by the end of the summer, I was sort of converted as much. I, nothing against Stevie Wonder incredible, incredible artist. But um, you know, he gave me this tape, uh, it was called Prince on the Slow. And it was sort of a compilation of Prince's great ballads from For You to Uh 91 as Diamonds and Pearls. And I just could not believe not just the performance, but uh, you know, this is a, this is somebody who was able to sort of write this many songs. I, and I just became a fanatic after that and dived into the catalog. And it's so richly rewarding because there's so so much music. And even in, you know, after what sometimes is called his imperial era, which I would say is from like 82 to 87 from from 1999 to Sign of the Times, uh, where I I feel like he could could read a phone book and it would be great. Um, There's still great, great stuff on the albums that are kind of coming after that and before it. and there's so much music there; it's so rewarding um, that you know. I would say, like, he's just one of my favorite artists. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was a real joy to prepare for this show and kind of re-listen to these records and 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 kind of reading about the stuff and the contemporary accounts. And uh, you can really get lost in it. And I'm kind of waiting for in the next couple of years when some of the really professional documentaries come out on Prince. Um, but there's a lot of material out there and i just think anybody who likes pop music r&b rock music should 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 give prince the, the attention that he deserves
1: funny things about finally discovering Prince and getting into Prince was realizing how much Prince i had already known and not realized it so like i as a kid growing up if you'd asked me you know i was born in 1980 uh same same year scott was what did i yep. know when doves cry couldn't avoid it 1999 the little red corvette those were like the the most delirious yeah i kind of knew and then what else did I think I knew? I think the next thing I could remember was, like, Bat Dance. And I hated friggin' Bat Dance. <laughs> you know, I I really liked the film, but I hated that song, and it was all over the radio. And so Prince was almost just sort of, like, alien to me. You know, he'd have some hits here and there, and I had this one great childhood memory of, of the song Irresistible Bitch, which I will absolutely tell the story about later on in the show. Um, but... Then I finally, in college, borrowed – my friend actually gave it to me. My friend and I were big CD collectors, big music junkies, and I let him borrow something of mine. And, and then to thank me, he said, hey, you know what? This isn't my kind of thing. Why don't you have it? So he gave me his three-CD set of the hits and the B-sides. And I still to this day cannot recommend enough. This is probably the best possible way to start your journey with Prince if you know nothing really else about him except you know the radio hits here and there. You could start there. And you will not fail. All
3: seven and we'll watch them fall. They stand in the way of love and we will smoke them all with an intellect and a savoir faire. No one in the whole universe will ever compare. I am yours now and you are mine and together we'll love through all. Face and time, so don't cry. One day, all seven will die. All seven, and we'll watch them fall.
1: And I didn't fail, I became obsessed with them. Started buying the albums, fell into the wild wheeled world the purple one, and then became, that as naturally I am, became Obsessive Compulsive, because if there's any one artist who affords Obsessive Compulsive collection, uh, it's Prince, with all these outtakes, live performances, B-sides, 12-inch remixes, all these wonderful, weird corners of his discography to explore. And what did you discover about Prince when you explored him? This is what made him most transfixing of all. You discovered a true artist in full. A Renaissance man, one of the last few Renaissance men in music who could really do it all. Maybe not in the same way that David Bowie could do it all. Like Bowie was like, you know, he could write, you know, literature and you know, you know, act on stage and, you know, do poetry. But Prince was a one man band. He didn't need anybody's help to do anything. He had a fully formed conception of the kind of music he wanted to do, what he was capable of. And when he grew, he grew organically. He was never anybody's fool. He refused to ever be taken advantage of by anyone. And he kept that quality streak going for so long. I'd argue from like 1979 to say 1993. Gosh, I, I think that's his true regal period, if you ask me. I think there's maybe a dip here and there's a dip there, but the quality is so amazing. It
3: was only last two
1: Sort of amazing rock tale. That just is just sort of a testament to to Prince's own sort of singular self determination, his stubbornness. Perhaps somebody would have characterized it as. I mean, this is the man who changed his name into an unpronounceable symbol just to piss off Warner Brothers, who he thought were giving him a raw deal. And the thing is, Warner Brothers were actually not even giving him that bad a deal. Prince was that kind of just very stubborn man who was so determined to do it his way uh, like Frank Sinatra and uh, and he did and because he did he left music that plays in every genre it's not just R&B it's not pop music it's not folk it's not metal it's not funk it's not anything it's just Prince music
0: professional Prince lover and it's one of the large holes in my music knowledge and so now we're filling it uh, part by part on political beats so I started with very rudimentary knowledge of Prince I knew uh, certainly uh, Purple Rain the album although I'll admit here you can make fun of me later I've never seen the film I've never seen Purple Rain the film it's Um, terrible don't worry about it okay good no, it is not
2: terrible. It's <laughs> just one good film,
0: but okay. Uh, certainly, I knew you know Raspberry Beret, and I remember in the uh, in the mid, not the early, but I guess the mid days of MTV, the videos for Kiss and a few things from Diamonds and Pearls. He was always out there, uh, but I had never really become a Prince fan or taken the time to dig into it, and I think largely because there's just so much. Even at that point, he was well known for for writing voluminous amounts of songs and and releasing an amazing amount of material. And so it's imposing. Uh, I think for me, much the way David Bowie was imposing too t- to try to get into his immense catalog of releases over the years. And uh, and so this is this is all, or you know, a vast majority of the stuff is new. And and even. You know, both of you guys have talked about how he could do it all, and I I knew about that. You know, I I knew he was sort of a one-man band. He could do anything he wanted, but listening back from the very beginning, where where I always start when I try to encounter a new artist, so, you know, from For You all the way up and through uh, past Purple Rain into uh, the last album we'll talk about today, Around the World in a Day, uh, went straight through, and hearing the incredible ability he has to play in essentially any uh, genre. Uh, From where he started to sort of uh, inventing new ways of of playing music and inventing new ways of using synthesizers and becoming so influential in that decade of the 80s for the way those songs sounded and for the songs he would write and hand off to others. Uh, Prince songs were everywhere. In the 1980s, as Jeff said, even if you didn't know it, you were listening to Prince, almost certainly, based on the number of number one hits he had all over. Heck, there was a a time in, what, 1986 when he was number one and number two from two different artists. He had a song at number two, and uh, the Bangles were at number one with Manic Monday, a Prince song. So he was inescapable if you knew where to look. And I'm so impressed. Uh, I, I will not have anywhere near the information, knowledge, or hot takes of Eli or Jeff on this show, but I hope I'm able to convey how impressed I am by Prince and his output, certainly in this initial period of time where we go from, what, 1978 through 1985 or so. Uh, There's not a bum album in the mix. There are a few. You know, Jeff has this theory, I won't steal it from him, about about how Prince operates, you know, through his career, and I think we see that sort of unfold at times during this early period as well. But there's so much to like here, and there's so many things—I'll uh, keep my Potter dry on mentioning a few of them—so many things that he does well, that he does better than almost anyone else in music uh, in this time that we're covering, or really in any time. He's an insanely talented songwriter, an insanely talented uh, performer and musician, and it's a lot of a package that we have to unfold here in where we're probably close to three hours today.
1: The other thing is is well I was gonna save that take for maybe a later episode so I guess that's that's where I'll leave it the one that you were talking about Mm -hmm. but you know it it really does help to locate Prince within a certain genre of child prodigies because that's who he is you know what's the brief bio the biography of Prince yeah I hate getting bogged down in this stuff but he is an interesting character and very much it seems to me was formed by his childhood so his father and his mother broke up when he was 10 Uh, I'm not sure what his mother did, but his father was a professional musician and a very demanding one at that, a very talented one. I think he ran his own trio. It was the Prince Rogers uh, Trio, uh, which wasn't his name, but they sound like a cool name, so he decided to name his kid Prince Rogers Nelson. Everybody thinks Prince is like a stage name. That's that's his name. That was was the name his dad gave him. Um, And uh, the parents split apart uh, when he was 10. The mom got remarried bad relationship with the with the uh, stepfather um and the other problem is that he had two notable qualities one uh was that he was like five foot two which is remarkably short for a guy everybody talks about it and it is a notable thing and and the other is that he was a preternatural musical genius The person he reminds me the most of is somebody that we've covered recently on the show and that's kate bush very different backgrounds and upbringings, but a similar level of precocity in the sense that they were already basically able to write like complete songs and knew who they were and what they wanted to be right out of the gate. They didn't really need any help from anybody else. And the minute they were able to throw off any kind of like, you know, oversight and just be their own person. They did no surprise that both of them were fans of one another throughout the eighties and the nineties. Um, so what happens? Well, Prince is, is like well-known in the scene of Minneapolis as being a really talented musician, but he doesn't like to play gigs. He won't play clubs. He insists that I will only... Uh, You know, I want to practice my art through studio recordings. And he has his own home studio, too. So he's learned how to do it. As I said, at a young age, he learned how to do it. And so he records some demos with the help of a a guy who's managing him. And then he sends them to L.A. and he starts a bidding war. Warner Brothers signs him. And how do they sign him? They sign him by basically they come to see him and he proves to them that he can actually do this. They say, like, everything on this record is me. Nobody (laughs) else is playing this instrument. I will prove to you that everything is. I'm going to record a song right in front of you. And so he he just laid down a rhythm track, no click track, just laid it down, five minutes of a steady beat, then lays down the synth, then the bass, then the guitars, and then by the end of it, he had a contract. how he set about with complete free you know ability to do whatever he wanted to record his first album for you which is the only album actually that he more or less he would ever record outside of his home of minneapolis he records this in california now before we get to this album actually eli is there something you want to say about the scene the minneapolis scene prince came from
2: well then yes uh so it's not just prince he there's a number of incredible musicians that are in Minneapolis at the time, and they all know each other in junior high school and high school. And these include, uh, Jimmy jam and Terry Lewis, who would go on to become the, probably the, I don't know if you want to say Prince is the most important producer of the eighties. They're the second most important producer. Um, these are the guys who kind of are responsible for the breakout of Janet Jackson's career. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely critical for the invention of something called new Jack swing. Um, Jam and Lewis are like the Gamble and Huff of the 80s. Uh, and those That's guys... Exactly right, yeah. Those guys are like... Originally, they're in a band called Flight Time. And they're rivals in Minneapolis, but they're also friends. It's Grand Central, which is Prince's in the band. And then you have Jellybean Johnson, who I think is an incredible drummer. He All of these guys, by the way, end up in a group called The Time, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um... It's an incredibly fertile kind of scene where what you're seeing is the sort of the the, the genesis of what is be called, be called becomes the Minneapolis sound. One of the things I think is is important and interesting is that there's a club called First Avenue, which is made famous in the movie Purple Rain, but that's a rock club. So Minneapolis also has this great rock scene with the replacements, and yet, you know. These bands are also kind of gigging at the same club together, so he's hearing a lot of that as well, and I think that that influences Prince, at a very young age, uh, to really consider himself, as he says in his uh, famous song, uh, you know, Am I Black or Am I White? Am I Straight or Am I Gay? Like, he doesn't want to be defined, and that's from controversy. That is something that is a defining characteristic of Prince's music and I the think the first you know, thing he
1: said to the Warner's executives, I think it was exactly. like Len, Lenny Waronker who signed him, you know, the famous producer. And Mo like, Austin, right. Yeah, and Mo Austin. He's like, I just I want you to know, I don't just listen to black artists, okay? I listen to all sorts of music. And he right from the jump, you know, even though this first album is a very kind of an R and B based album, he wanted to make it very clear, do
2: not put me in a box. That that's right. And he's nineteen years old that he's saying that. And he's an unproven artist who has a hundred and eighty thousand dollars advance at a three record deal. The chutzpah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for a nineteen year old. Well, that's the and- classic. That's
1: the classic joke, though, about For You <laughs> is that he had a hundred and eighty thousand dollars advance for a three record deal
2: to record all three yeah. records, and he blew
1: yeah. all of it recording just the first record.
2: Yes, amazing. And by the way, it turned out to be the best thing he ever did because we'll get into it once we start talking about For You. But but the point is, is that he knows who he is you know at age 19 he knows exactly what he wants to do he is not intimidated by anybody and the amazing thing is that warner brothers contrary to what we you know the sort of narrative of the of the 1990s warner brothers totally supports him and not just supports him they they put out dirty mind they put out country put out records that are really risque in this
1: period it's, it's no surprise he signed Warner. warner's had the reputation yes. as being the artist's label and then at that time they were the art the, the label that would put out randy newman mm-hmm. you know records even though they sold five copies you know, that kind <laughs> of a thing so yeah that's why he signed with them and they lived up to it they backed him to
2: the hilt right um so i mean i think that that's that that at least Warner Brothers for the first like 12 years or they get a very bad rep, in my view, uh, when look back from the kind of unpronounceable symbol stuff and when he breaks free of them, um, because I think that they that it, he, it's it's hard to think of any other label that would have put out, uh, especially an album like Dirty Mind or allowed him. I mean, one of the things about For You is that originally they said, you're great talent. Can, can Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire produce you? And he's like, no, I'm. I don't want to be produced by anyone. I'm my own producer. And at the time, Earth Wind & Fire is probably the biggest group in R&B. I mean, it's so. Again, the it's like stuff. have.
1: It's like they're asking, like, would you mind if we let like a god produce you that will <laughs> yeah. guarantee your album's complete success? And he's yeah, like, no, like if I, you were I'd, like I'd rather a, do it on my right. own.
2: If you were like a girl group, he's like, hey, you know, with this producer named Phil Spector, he's got some hits. <laughs> he's exact. Get get him away from here. We know what we're doing. You know, so. Do so you mind
1: if Dr. Dre produced your yeah. early 90s <laughs> hip-hop single?
2: Yeah,
1: I guess that brings us to For You, right? And this yes. is the, 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 the debut album from 1978. This is the one that's kind of mostly forgotten. It never gets talked about. The only song that ever gets on any of the greatest hits is Soft and Wet, which is a good enough tune. It's not one of my favorites. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like you know advance like a hot take saying this is secretly one of Prince's greatest albums. But I will say that I like this album very much. I have no problems with it. I think there's a little bit too much chintz and a few too like sort of generic R&B ballads with you know sort of that that waka waka weird sounding uh, synth noise. I, I, gosh, I'm gonna steal your thought because this was in your emails, Eli. But yes, it's porno synth and it does sound like that. <laughs> very interesting sound that you just don't hear on a lot of other records of the time because prince bought state-of-the-art tech with his money um but yeah i like this album just fine even though i don't think it's incredibly distinguished eli what were your thoughts on it
2: okay so a couple things i uh, so let's i could start with the flaws but i want to start with, with the gems in my view prince's balladry on this album is fully formed in the sense that there are there are Four ballads, if you count 4 You," the opening, which I want to talk about in a minute. We're talking about So Blue, Crazy You, and Baby. All three of which I believe are part of the Prince canon. And, uh, you know, I think he ends up doing better ballads later. So saying that what's to come is better than 4 You" is not a takeaway from 4 You," But I feel that this is the Prince sound. I think Crazy You and... I particularly So Blue, are gorgeous performances. He achieves a level of intimacy on these songs. Um, The lyric writing is not as good as what we're gonna get in a few years, but I don't care because the performance is so great. Um, And I love the um, the, the, the kind of melding of the acoustic intimacy, and there are these sort of weird synth-like effects that he puts to very good use that can go very wrong and i would say songs like so blue crazy you uh in particular give us a glimpse of what i think is his most underrated album that will come out uh 20 years later called the truth which is that style i really love it um so those that is those are the highlights want to talk for a second about for you um it's extraordinary it is a one and a half minute symphony of prince's own voice um and i think that this is in some ways a kind of attempt to one-up stevie wonder the opening track of songs in the key of life which is everywhere when he is recording this album in 1977 um it's one of the you know kind of gigantic titanic records of the 1970s and an all-time classic it opens with loves in need of love today with stevie doing his own choir of his own voices to open up this this really kind of beautiful uh you know ballad um and i think what prince kind of hears that and then says okay uh i'm gonna do something even greater and if you listen to for you it's kind of amazing it sounds a little bit also like he's influenced by some of the great harmonies of the beach boys um but it's his own thing, and he he manages to sort of create with his own voice again an entire symphony, an entire arrangement. Um, blows me away.
1: Now, and the, by the way, and the symbolism of it too cannot be underestimated because it, it's obviously, you know, Prince identifying himself with Stevie as like a fully autonomous artist, yeah, guy who does everything by himself. Made Stevie the person that Prince, at this young age, so arrogant to think that I am like I am worthy of following in the footsteps of Stevie Wonder, the guy who had just done like talking book intervisions, fulfilling this his first finale, and then this, and then he says, "Yeah, I can do that." And it almost actually is exactly how it worked, because just as Stevie Wonder's music starts to tail off, that's when Prince ascends to Mega
2: stardom. Um But well, I want one one more thing. I just want to say yeah. for you, and that is the final track, which is "I'm Yours." I know Ah, you're uh, stealing my thunder. Well, I know, and Jeff, I want I don't want to steal your thunder, but I would just say this. There are two albums in this first in the first four where the last track gives us a preview of what is to come. Uh and I'm yours is just he shreds. I mean, you you're getting not just amazing lead electric guitar playing, you're getting bass solos trading with guitar solos that's all prince uh i feel like he's sort of listening to eddie van halen and steve vai and like the emerging kind of heavy metalish sound and saying you know what i can do this too um and this is a preview of what we're going to get on prince prince because he shreds on that one too (laughs) and um so that i think and it's a it's an interesting song in my view i say i think in, in our notes it's a wonderful mess because The problem is the production on I'm Yours, as well as the other danceable tracks, it's almost like it's too muddy because he's such a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. He's adding so many elements that it ends up that the sound, I don't want to say it's about I'm Yours, but I mean, for the other tracks like In Love and As Long as We're Together, they sound generic for 1978. Yes, yes. It doesn't stand out. Whereas I would say that the ballads are completely distinctive and they sound only like a prince, and then there's, and then I'm yours, which is like, what are you gonna do with this? This song is like so intricate, it sounds like I don't know, prog funk. I mean, it's incredible, and I don't think there's any other song. Has he done anything like that after this? It's, it's like, yeah, it's I'd say it.
1: Bambi comes pretty close to it on the next record. I,
2: Bambi comes close, but it's more of a traditional, it's like Bambi's more structured like a traditional rock song, like whereas I'm sure. yours just
1: it funks back. out, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's
2: and like the, the technical wizardry on both bass and guitar you just it just your jaw drops you're like this guy's 19 years old and he he's able to do like i don't know smoky robinson marvin gay level lyricism and falsetto and he can do this yes what, what, what are we dealing with? It's incredible
1: also the fact that he can this is in the era before the drum machines once the the drum machines come in his job becomes much easier but at this early date he's simply laying down he sets a metronome on and he'll just play for five and a half minutes or however long he thinks the track needs to be and then start laying down the rest of it as a bed piece by piece that is just an incredibly hard way to work you have to be a master craftsman your beat has to be perfect you can't be stiff you can't be loose it's just it's a very difficult thing to do scott what was your experience of prince's first album as the absolute noob
0: so i want to both agree and disagree with eli on on different points uh so i don't think the ballads are the are the high points here um i actually i don't think i had any of them necessarily written down as being things that I necessarily really liked on for you but on the other hand I do agree they're the most Prince-like things on the album I actually have this is a literal note I have here on Just As Long As We're Together which I like a lot but I my note says it's not princified yet uh, so yes it does as, as Eli said it does just sort of sound like a late 70s track that perhaps someone else could have done but I do think Prince does it extremely well the ballads maybe are things that only Prince could work on, but I'm not sure he's executing at a high enough level yet as a 19-year-old to pull them completely off. I also think it's possible that so much effort was spent on on this recording perfection and so much effort was spent on, on fighting some of the outside influence and making sure the label wasn't involved, and this is just going to be, you know, it's his thing. It's Prince's album, even at the age of 19. That a little bit of the big picture was lost on some of the songs, and Eli mentioned the production quality. That I heard that too. Sometimes where things were muddy or melding together, and sometimes the vocals were not able to sort of break out from the rest of of, of the music on some of these tracks. So I agree on some, disagree on other. Um, you know, I, I think just as long as we're together is a really good track. <laughs> Soft and wet, I'll tell you this, um, I knew because my brother, and I. if it were me, I'd tell you, I'm, I'm open like that. My brother owned MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. And uh, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him features, I don't know if it's a straight cover, it's definitely sampled. Uh, soft and wet. And by your the
1: way, brother, your brother it doesn't listen to this. He's not going to be around doesn't. to refute your lies. No, will that's he? true.
0: Uh, yeah, MC no. Hammer's birthday today. By the way, he is sixty years old today. Sixty, sixty years old today as we tape this episode. So I did know at least part of "Soft and Wet" from having heard MC Hammer's uh, "Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him" through the walls of the house as a young man, young boy. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a that's a fine song. Uh, Eli talked a lot about I'm Yours, which I think is, is one of the two best songs uh, on the record. He is uh, He's so into his falsetto so much in the album, it's almost bracing when in I'm Yours at the beginning of the verses, he gives you a little growl before he starts singing. It's like, I've got this here too, I'm just not going to show it to you yet, is what it sounds like to me. And of course, you have the first hints of just how amazing of a guitar player we'd hear him, uh, I don't know, become or at least show us in the coming albums with, uh, sort of the, 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 angry chords, the angry playing on I'm yours. Uh, I, I, you know, there's no, I don't think there's a, there's a signature sound here yet. And as Jeff alluded to, too, it's, it, he's helped with the advent of the synths and the, and, and the, uh, and the sequencers that allow him to sort of be more of, be more, uh, uh, creative and develop what he wants to develop that would come in a little bit but this is a i'd say a fine debut by any artist um but not you know we've had these episodes where we say you know out of the box it's a home run this is a five star sort of thing that's not where for you is but it does hint at a lot of really great things to come
2: well,
1: actually, I'll tell you what is a five-star, ten out of ten album. Uh, it's not his debut; it's his second album. It's the self-titled album, Prince, and this it, it boggles my mind. It blows my mind, frankly, that this album isn't spoken of as highly as you know some of his more famous works, like 1999 or uh, Dirty Mind, for that matter. Uh, people often just say that, like, well, you know, it's Dirty Mind where Prince becomes sort of like this, you know, crazy, daring sexy you know avant-garde freak guy who would conquer the you know conquer the country but man i i see every second i see everything there on the debut album and i or the second album i always call it the debut album because it's called prince right and, and <laughs> i wonder what prince was thinking like why didn't he call his first album prince it's clever he waited until he had an even better record to name it after himself uh this is the one that has the hilariously like goofy cover of him you know like shirtless with like you know, with the, all the chest hair, and he's got this very long, flowing mane of hair, and it just looks so weird. He's, got and on sky- the,
2: he's riding on a pegasus,
1: and there's like a powder blue background <laughs> behind know. him. It's like so weird and vaguely cheap-looking. There is nothing cheap-sounding about this record. <laughs> you so bad are the most confident one-two punch you'll find in any record in the entire year of 1979 and 1979
0: was a damn fine year for music mm-hmm.
1: i just don't understand why people don't talk about this there's maybe one piece of chintz on this i think still waiting is you know it's like it'll be the the, the i like that the, one yeah i don't know it's a little bit cheesy to me But he goes everywhere here, too. It's so diverse. You've got guitar heroics on songs like Bambi or Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. You have straight-up R&B and funk on I Want to Be Your Lover. You've got the Shaka Khan song, I Feel For You. It would later become a hit for her. Uh, But Prince's version is just amazing. And then you have, like, yeah, you know, When We're Dancing Close and Slow, this soft sort of just... Ghostly, you have these wisps of wind that gust that in is. and out of the song as it's these very quiet acoustic guitar, you know, notes being softly plucked. It's as far away from RB or you know, any sort of generic, you know, what you thought, you know, uh, you know, a guy named Prince would be giving you. Uh, this is the moment where he shows all of his talents, in my opinion. And I think this ranks up there with all of his other truly great works.
3: I want to come inside of you. I want to hold you in with you. Can't you feel my love?
0: I agree. I, I I think this is a fantastic album. Uh, it might make my my final two or my two albums here at the end of the show. And it's you know he's 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 still just twenty years old putting all of this together. And you know, Four You didn't sell well. It was one sixty three. Warner Brothers stuck with him as we've talked about uh, earlier. And so. If he were to, like, intentionally go into a lab and craft, which he essentially did, I guess, and craft a chart-busting uh, hit, he could do no better than I Want to Be Your Lover, right? I mean, th- and that's the one that sort of th- that really breaks him. It's just a perfect slab of, you know, funk, dance, rock that can appeal, would appeal, you know, cross-formats and across uh, different audiences across the country. It, it is just a fantastic song. I need your love. said the follow-up uh, the one two of why you want to treat me so bad uh also is is outstanding but deeper into this album look, I'll, I'll defend still waiting briefly in in the way that i understood it when i listened on uh to the album and that is we talked about how he he's you know sort of genre uh, genre hopping from funk to dance to disco to to rock to, to, to ballads i think still waiting i think still waiting is a country song it's just, it's just it's just it's a country song
1: Yeah, opening a little lilt you know the yeah. yeah the little the roll of the guitars into it
0: the yeah. s- the synths are sort of twisted enough to sound like that strain of a pedal steel guitar the lyric in you know, the lyrics he's still waiting for love to come around uh by gum i almost hear it uh he spends some nights a crying some days a trying i mean that's that's the that's the that's an effort at a at sort of crafting this sort of country song i think maybe not intentionally but that's the way I hear it, the way it comes off, and I think it's really effective. I I, I like Still Waiting.
3: Still.
1: This is the beginning of Prince being able to get some really fantastic double Entendre's into yes. the top of the charts with yeah, right. I want to be your lover. I want to be the one the only one who makes you come running. The
2: only one you come
1: for. <laughs> I right. want to be well Second he does time. both. Yeah, I wanna yeah be right, the only right. one who makes you come running and yeah, I want to be the only one you come for. Hey, such an innocent sentiment. How could you well you must have a dirty <laughs> mind to think that there was anything implied in that. Soon. Soon. Uh, Not yet, uh, soon.
0: Sexy Dancer. So Sexy Dancer reminds me of those uh, Stone Rolling Stones song fragments that we kind of talked about during the Stone yeah. show, like D- Dance Part 1 and Slave oh, right. and There's Hot stuff, on stuff. Black and Blue, like Hot Stuff. But yeah. that's my, those are my favorite Stones tracks. I love, I love those tracks. Track and so right, exactly. I, I think Sexy Dancer works really well uh, oh, and, here on and the And by the way, too. Mick Jagger later, when
1: they they made fun of him for singing songs like Dance and like Emotional Rescue, he specifically said, I was inspired by Prince. There's this great line. He's like, well, didn't he do like three straight albums in the seventies where he only sang in falsetto? <laughs> Which yes. is his phase. And that's
3: what he's thinking of.
0: Uh, Bambi's great though. Those, those kind of hair metal riffs, the thunderous drums. It's some combination of like blue oyster cult and deep purple, but cooler uh, the way that, that uh, Prince can, can pull it off. And again, you know, Bambi is, is, uh, you know, explicit in its lyrics and, uh, you know, uh, uh uh, and even the, the, the title, you know, of course, reminds you of this young, innocent deer that, of course, Prince has very different ideas for as you get deeper into the lyrics. You know, Bambi, I know what you need. Bambi, maybe you need to bleed. Yeah.
1: It, but it's all glam to me. It's just like the sound. It, it's is not pure glam rock. The yeah. lyrics are just like pure, just like glam trash on purpose.
0: It's not.
1: He's trying to Dangerous. get a lesbian to
0: sleep with him. I mean, right,
1: right. right. I mean, Well, I mean, this is Prince. We're going yes. to get, trust me, are going to get a lot weirder.
0: It's this. not yeah. ominous, right? It's not It's not like danger around the corner in that way that, that Jeff's sort of talking about. Yeah, it's, it's glam and, and campy and it really works well. them down. I mean, this is, a, this is an outstanding album. I, I, this is one of my really sort of joyous discoveries from getting through this era of the Prince catalog.
2: Eli, what did we miss? Uh, well, for everybody, both of you are right, it's classic material. It's a great record. Um, a couple notes. Um, I Want to Be Your Lover is the song where Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson first acknowledge Prince. And obviously, Prince and Michael become rivals in the 1980s, but they first hear that and they're like, hey, that's really good. I really like that sound. My view is that even though I Want to Be Your Lover is his breakout hit it is totally infectious. You is the first time you hear it. It's like you feel like you've heard it your whole life. I think Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad is the superior single. <laughs> and I think, you're I right. think that I, I just think that's a perfect kind of pop. R&B song, uh, it's got everything that Prince is doing kind of all jam- jumbled up together. The guitar playing on it is great. It doesn't go on too long. The rhythm playing on that track is phenomenal. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. I like all of the ballads on Prince, Prince. I think I probably dissent from you guys in that I, I prefer So Blue Crazy You. I prefer Four used ballads better than When We're Dancing Close and So With You and Still Waiting, but that's, you know, we're choosing between two great, you know, they're, they're all really good. <laughs> For me, the standout track is The Closer, It's Gonna Be Yeah, lovely.
0: that's a good one.
2: That <laughs> is just a phenomenal track. It, I think, is the first time we're really seeing the depth of the kind of emotional vulnerability of Prince. Uh, the multi-tracking of his vocals are subtle, but brilliant that's um, there's,
1: there's like five a corral of like five princes all singing that you know that big final note that they hold that they yes know, at the top and it just oh it's so, it's so good he sounds so great singing with himself too
2: he i mean d- like, he really does Baby, don't Prince isn't the first person to like kind of do this stuff. I mentioned Stevie wonder Marvin Gaye, you know, on, I want you. And, you know, he, he kind of reinvents this game of, in terms of, of, of just creating symphonies of his own voice, but Prince does it in a really distinct way. And I feel like it's going to be lonely is it's, he, it's his unique stamp. It's that's Prince music. So, you know, the, the consensus opinion among critics is that the next record, which we're about to talk about, Dirty Mind, is where Prince really finds his voice. I feel like he's finding his voice on It's Gonna Be Lonely, and then it's off to the races. The only other thing I'll say about Prince Prince is that because Prince blew his advance for the mo- almost all of it on For You with all of these synthesizers, the, 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 the state-of-the-art synthesizers of 1978, it meant that when he was doing Prince Prince, it had to be much more stripped down. And that was a great thing for him because right. the stripped down sound of the early Prince is what, that's his voice. And, um, you know, so it turned out to be this kind of, you know, that, that, that whatever you want to say, like he made a mistake maybe for you by overproducing it and blew his money, but it was good that he had less money because Prince Prince sounds so much cleaner and you can just tell it's a huge leap, um, because he does begin to strip things down and that becomes, The signature of Prince's sound for the next two records, Um, but you begin to kind of hear it on Prince Prince. And so that's the other thing is that one of the reasons why I think this is the superior record to for you is because he doesn't have that cushion of, you know, know, as much studio time as he wants to kind of Mm -hmm. tweak everything and make it absolutely perfect. And he kind of strips it down to its bare bones and it sounds great. It does. And one last
1: thing I want to say before you move on, I, I just have to circle back to the song "Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad." I love it every bit as much as Eli does, and I just have to single out that guitar ending. Oh, yeah. uh, we talk, we talk about like why is Prince recognized as a guitar god? Because when people talk about like you know some of the greatest guitarists of all time, the obvious ones are you know, Hendrix, you know, or if you're a nerd like me, Fripp, you know, Zappa, all these you know guys who can shred like Steve Vai and things like that. You know Eddie Van Halen, and then you mentioned Prince, but then when you think of all of Prince's big hits, there's not lots of guitar in them, is there? It shows up in, in in places maybe that you're not expecting, but one of the most obvious ones is here. I think he's playing. I think there must be like five separate guitars at the end of that song playing off of each other. There's one rhythm guitar. There are at least two leads in harmony with one another. It is just the most spectacularly rapturous sound. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it develops perfectly from the rest of the song, too. It, it, it comes naturally out of it. the guitar solo feels like it emerges properly from the ending of the song and it never feels like it's too long for one second And then the irony is that the next record sounds nothing like it. Not a damn thing like it. If you wanted big, soaring, epic, like guitar pop songs, <laughs> well, here, here's a song about sleeping with your sister. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, here's a song about stealing a bride who now morning, noon, night gives you head. Uh, now, yeah, let's go to Uptown, uh, wherever that is. And uh, you know why? Well, because frankly, this fella at the end of the day, he just has a dirty mind. Is the one that made him big what was your line your joke with us and when we were emailing eli is this is the one that made all the critics love him in new york
2: absolutely you want to start with this one eli yeah sure okay so i, I have to quote bob criscoll the dean of music critics who in his review of dirty mind said mick jagger should fold up his penis and go home <laughs> because this record is just pure dirty sex it is yes. great Um, it's, it's a perfect record. Um, I mean, like if he just kind of petered out after this, he would still be a great artist because Dirty Mind doesn't have a bad track. Unlike the next two records, uh, Controversy and 1999, he does not indulge himself and go on for like eight minutes on something because he likes the groove, And he does that also. If you, um, I want to be your lover. I'm not saying it's too long. I like the end of it. But the last two and a half minutes well, are just this fade out vamp.
0: There's a reason they cut that for the single version, right? I mean, Yes,
2: <laughs> right.
1: So the longest the, longest, the longest, the most indulgent thing on this entire record is Uptown, which has like a little, a very small instrumental section at the end that you know you're not going to think of that as like an indulgent groove anyways so i think the entire record is like 36 minutes long it's totally. tight it's, no
2: it's actually 30 minutes i think yeah. 30 minutes
1: long? oh god it's i like love it 30...
2: oh, i love it so much i love short records i always rave, I rapture yes. about how much i love short records so that's the th- so that's the- everything there's not a wasted note now i could go you could we could talk about every single song on this but i'm just gonna these are my these are my standouts but i love them all uh Do it all night, which I think uh, is sometimes overlooked in my view is just like, it's pop perfection. It's so tight. That talk about like kind of merging the synth and guitar to make it sound like a completely new sound. That's do it all night. Got a Broken Heart Again. Um, I love love that. And it reminds me of both So Blue from the first record, but then How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, which is coming up, which is like one of the all-time Prince, you know, Torch songs. Um, I love the line. I spent it all on a long-distance call, begging her to please come home. Um, So, and that's a little bit, it's kind of an odd because the rest of the album is kind of so gritty. And Got a Broken Heart Again is sweet. Um, now I want to talk about "Head" because uh, the Prince fanatic the scandal. Yes, it okay. Lyrically, it is about finding a bride on the way to her wedding, and then she gives you. Yeah, girls, hi- basically hijacking her. Basically it, hijacking it, it, her. It
3: yes,
2: <laughs> diverting but, her from her appointed path to a life of sin. That's basically what it's about. Okay, so this record, this song "Head" is this is the archetype of that dirty, awesome Prince funk. And we're gonna get a lot more of that in Controversy and 1999 and then like later, you know, but this is the sort of, this is the first archetype of it. Uh, I kind of feel like this is a a, a, a message to Rick James uh, and they're about to go on tour in 81 for con- in the Controversy era, but Rick James, kind of his shtick is i'm doing something called punk funk and i feel like prince just did it better my notes on the email were dear rick james i think this is what you're trying to do sorry (laughs) not sorry that i did it better yours prince he's in conversation with Rick James and he's already at like what age 20, 21 or whatever, doing it better. And then that goes right into sister, which is just so dirty and kind of hilarious. The tipper gore is so disturbed by darling Nikki on purple rain. Boy, this <laughs> okay. is the one. But you know, what's even more hilarious about sister
1: is that if you, if you, if you take it apart and you listen to it carefully, it's a rockabilly song. Yes, no, no, it, it is. It, and that's, it, the it, other... it's, it's not, like it's yeah. not funk at all. It, it's rockabilly, you know? Yeah. Straight yeah, up.
2: It, but I mean, it's, it, it it's it works it, it's like i hate to say it it's like i i don't agree with the lyrical content of that it reminds me of the guns and roses song one in a million which is a horrible lyric but, but it's, it a good, just,
1: it's a good melody we talked about
2: that on our show yeah it's like well i don't know what <laughs> to say right. it's good music and then the, fa- the final track uh party up what he calls revolutionary rock and roll this is the song that he played on saturday night live in his huge appearance there Um, which he ends with the entire band running into the audience. It is a totally subversive song that starts off and you think you're just listening to a party funk jam. And it's one of his most political songs he's ever written because he is basically calling for military defections and civil disobedience in the army Uh, ending on that chance, you know, like you're going to have to fight your own damn war. I, did a little research because i originally was like what is he talking about what there's no hot war at the time This he, he records this in 1980 this is because jimmy carter after the soviet invasion of afghanistan proposes reintroducing the draft mm-hmm. so this is party up is like a response to that so you sort of begin now that to see... is
1: something i legitimately never knew now that's a fact that i i am <laughs> interested in knowing that's so
3: cool.
2: song and like i'm yours into the guitar thrashing of prince prince party up is the preview of what we're going to get in controversy which is probably his most political album but i i love every song on dirty mind and party up what a great way to end it um and it's like it's one of those records where it's like so good you just want to like as soon as it's done you know just go back to, to track one. You just want to like listen to the whole thing again. It's amazing. Hey,
1: all right, Scott. Scandalize Hillsdale. <laughs>
2: hey, I promise
1: Wait, you, it only gets easier after this. Well, mostly. mostly. Mostly, but not
0: not completely. Um, this it, it is a great album. The way it begins, Eli spent a lot of time talking about the second half of the record, and uh, I'll probably leave most of that to, for Jeff to pick up, too, although I do have one big thought about it. But the first, the first two songs on this record are so so good and and dirty mind the title track which starts it off it just sits there and pumps for what 30 seconds like what is coming There's foreboding like no it's just this throbbing robotic funk until the song kicks in and then you have this amazing piece of of, of, of both both you know dirty funk Music and that organ line that uh, that Doctor Fink provides—it's
1: innocent, actually, it, for the relative to the rest of this album. Well, it's the yeah, most innocent yeah, song yeah. on it.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's just a, it's a it's a perfect little organ line that really yeah. th- that doesn't leave your mind. It, as much as Prince did it, it needed that line to become sort of what it was and indelible. And then and then when you were mine, the, the, the second track is this almost like power pop number. Um, we'll mention at least I, I will mention it a few times. I think it might be mentioned again, you know, influences and, and where Prince is getting some things. And this is the first time, and there's more on, on controversy too, where I really hear such an influence from Fleetwood Mac and, and, uh, and Lindsey Buckingham specifically and Tusk specifically, uh, that, that dry guitar sound on, on when you were mine and sort of the. Um, you know, the, the, there's the like, like duo backing vocals that call to mind almost like he's trying to do like an Elvis Costello British accent on the backing vocals. It's just nuts, but also so the good.
1: skeletal the skeletal nature of the arrangement. It yeah. makes it sound like those yeah. like bathroom demos. Yeah, that yeah, was doing. Yeah,
0: and then when you were you begin to see as he was doing last album the way he's able to slip in things. Uh, it's not even slip things in. I mean, it's, but even in a song like When You Were Mine, which is sort of up tempo power pop at its core. You, you have these themes of, you know, uh, threesome when he, he, he was there sleeping between the two of us, and uh, when you were mine, you were all I ever wanted to do. Now I spend my time following him whenever he's with you. dirty or more graphic on the second half of the album with the songs that has been talked about one of the, one of the key uh, uh, sounds from this album is the way, you know, he's still singing almost exclusively in that high falsetto voice, and the way that high falsetto, that upper register plays against wh- what has now become this hard, smooth flat instrumentation throughout Dirty Mind is really an interesting juxtaposition, I really like that the one thing I'll say about these the second half of the album with Uptown and Head and, and Sister, and I don't this is not a fully formed thought, so I don't know if anyone pick, wants to pick it up. But you know, Prince is telling you in in ways like it's human interaction can save you. And it's it's very sexual, certainly, in these ways, but you know, uptown he meets a random person on the street, right? And and then they they have sex. Uh, head, <laughs> right? But, but again, head all these, song, all these songs. end, end with, with and sex. then they have right. sex. But it's like it, the punchline. Head is the same. Head he meets. You know, this this woman who's off to the wedding, and they they find each other. And sister is and the, then the sister comes in and, sh- and and shows him how to have sex. Um, but there's, there's something I don't know if there's something there and again I'm not the prince guy that you are that you guys are but something there about you know the, the way humans interact with themselves and how they're able to teach each other and maybe save each other and bring each other to a higher plane of existence I, again it's not a finished thought but that's what I kind of take away from the second half of the album in addition to just the raw sort of lust and animal attraction and all the sex uh, as Jeff said they all end and, and then they had sex um, but yes, I mean, that, that's what I get from the second half of the album in some way.
1: Oh gosh, I'm mean, going to have to get it together because I'm just laughing so hard. As <laughs> it, that, that Literally just dot, dot, dot. And then they had sex. Um, you know, Prince's cosmology is obviously somewhat confused. I don't think he worked it out quite to the same level of Immanuel Kant. But I, uh, uh, to the extent that it could be said to you know, be codified anywhere, it's probably on the next album in the song sexuality, right? Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> but uh the one thing i want to point out about these you guys really cover most of the highlights of this i just want to talk about you know, on a general level how quickly prince has mastered pop songcraft and on, not only just like a standard you know verse chorus verse middle eight kind of pop songcraft he's finding ways to do new and interesting things within the pop format that just you know somehow sound new and fresh. So Dirty Mind, the title track, I love it so much. And it's not just because of that great, you know, synth line that, that that Scott was talking about. That's that's why Dr. Fink gets the writing credit on the song, because he came up with that line. But it's the way it builds to this great middle eight. By the time Prince is screaming on the echo, like, you just gotta let me lay you, gotta let me lay you, lay you, lay you, down, 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 down. And it goes back into that same almost it feels kind of uh, like a very loping Euro disco beat. It's just this clever recreation from all sorts of strange component parts, a new pop song, and a new sound. that on you know like when you were mine you get it on got a broken heart again i completely agree with eli that that one that is is hugely underrated same with do it all night there's there's nothing bad to say about any of these songs and you guys have covered literally every other track so the only thing i can do other than say that dirty mind is just an essential record is talk about a song that isn't quite part of dirty mind but really should be heard as you know part of the same era and it's the only non-album single i think prince ever released there may have been one like in his late late era career that i'm not familiar with because i don't know that part of his discography as well but it's a song called gotta stop messing about you can find it on the b-side set of the uh the hits b-sides uh release uh and it's just been sort of consigned to obscurity because it didn't sharp but this song is amazing this song is everything about the sound of Dirty Mind and then what was about to become Controversy all folded into one And it doesn't sound anything anymore Like um, uh, R&B or Soul Or black music in fact This sounds like spastic XTC post-punk uh, And of course therefore Because I'm a nerd who loves spastic XTC Like post-punk I've <laughs> always loved this song So I just had to single this one out this, you guys,
0: This you, is you what know? Very quickly this is what uh, led me to, to comment In our email thread This one and then uh, I could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which you shared with us uh, as well. Which is from this era, right? Right. Same era. This is what led me... Like, there's an alternate reality in which he doesn't stop going down that path and somehow becomes like this amalgam of like the nervy twitchiness of early Elvis Costello combined with the the studio prowess and cocaine ingestion of Lindsey Buckingham and does these weird... I mean, he's going to do weird, wonderful things, but does these other weird, wonderful things throughout the 80s. He absolutely could have just followed that path and done something totally different and been totally successful.
2: One more thing about dirty mind just yeah. uptown is the is the neighborhood is a neighborhood in Minneapolis where I've been there many times we yes. used to live there yeah. right so you, so it's that the, uptown is about that scene in Minneapolis and i it's i always thought of it as sort of like a kind of pion on to the Minneapolis sound and the the culture that kind of created it and how you know it doesn't matter what is it white black puerto rican everybody freaking it's like what that's prince's vision like <laughs>
1: It, and by the way, that sort of you know, the thing you were talking about, what's going to be the de- defining sound of what's Prince's style of funk, and it comes through the synthesizers. There's a squiggliness to Prince's use of synthesizers. They never hold a straight tone. It seems sometimes mm-hmm. they always they always have a little vibrato or a, or a twitching. Like, they're they're always a little elusive. There's there's quicksilver in them, and that that was always the defining sound of his funk when he was in that mode, and he is still in that mode.
2: Come well, hold on. I, just a note on on your point about the a Prince funk. Yeah. Compare it to the layers upon layers that you get in a Funkadelic or a Parliament record, which is inf- very influential to Prince. And Prince is almost more of like coming out of that James Brown tradition, which strips everything down as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But by the time he's makes Dirty Mind uh, and he's kind of giving us what I believe is like, this is the funk of the 80s, this is, this is what Rick James is trying to do, the dominant sound is this super horn-laden, you know, kind of very orchestrated funk. And that's why it sort of sounded, even though in many ways it's obviously is, is he's standing on the shoulders of James Brown, uh, Everybody who does funk is standing on the shoulders of James Brown. But it is it is a kind of left turn for that era, and it's important to sort of, like, make that distinction. If you listen to, like, Mothership Connection or, like, Flashlight or, you know, the great Parliament records, this is not that. This is much grittier, much more stripped down, and even though he's using the synthesizer, he's using it in a way that you're like, yeah, this is like bare bones. It's great. You know? Right, and
1: that sound that sound keeps on. Um, for the first time, you see a direct continuity from album to album between Dirty Mind and Controversy, which comes in 1981. And you know what? Scott, you suggested I might talk about this, and then I demurred, but uh, I've changed my (laughs) mind. I am going to talk about my overarching, my global theory, my unified theory of Prince, okay? My unified theory of Prince's creativity is this, is that it sort of rolls in in natural waves and tides. that he's a man who kind of has a tendency to, to to, to fumble around and sort of search for his conceits, gather his strength, and then you know have this big burst forward of efflorescence, and then he has to go back and then gather his strength again. So you think of the first two albums of his career sort of building naturally to Dirty Mind, the focus of Dirty Mind. But then on controversy, for the longest time I felt like this album was a huge step down from Dirty Mind, significantly weaker. I no longer think that. But I do think it is a step backwards, a retrenchment, because it uses almost entirely the same sound of "Dirty Mind." There's a little, what's the change? Well, these are a little bit more political lyrics. Not really. I mean, Prince was never really like a guy who's going to give you flaming hot political. The hottest political take that Prince ever gave. Is hey, Ronnie talk to Russia before it's too late? Okay, <laughs> and then, and, and I have this this fantasy where Ronnie is about to push the big red button, and an aide rushes into the room, gasping, out of breath, <laughs> throws down a copy of Ronnie talk to Russia, and he says, "All right, f- it. Let's just do start instead." and so prince saved the world but that's about the level of prince's political engagement right you know it's it's not like it's something that really you know it demands your attention the way say you know the clash do or billy bragg does um the music however um it does seem like it's a bit of treading water before what's going to be the next big breakout i think that's made me be unfair to controversy over the years there are a couple songs on here i hate i know eli and i are going to go hammer and tongs over one of them uh but i think it also has probably never helped the controversy begins with the best song on the record Mm. the title track is amazing i consider it perfect it's the the long, the full at length seven minute version is the one you want to hear, yeah. where Prince is rapping about how he wishes that we were nude <laughs> um, all the time. Uh, people call him rude. Uh, that's the best song. And then everything after that is just not nearly as good. So I don't know. I think, Eli, you have a strong opinion about this one.
2: Dirty Mind is a superior album because there are no wasted notes and there are no wasted songs and you really can't argue with it. So if the argument is just Dirty Mind versus Controversy, yeah, Dirty Mind is like one of the greatest records ever made. What are you going to do? But Controversy is great in its own right. And I will just go through... Uh, I also think he is... he. It, yes, he's building on... It's, it's a similar sound in some ways to Dirty Mind, but he's also beginning to kind of expand his palette and take some chances that will show up on the next record. But let's let's talk about a few of them. Uh, I want to start with Private Joy, which is one of my favorite print songs. The first time he uses the drum Machine, which is all over 1999 and becomes... And an important... Purple Rain and, and Around
1: the World in a Day yes, and
3: the Times. It's
2: going to be his sound. <laughs> it's his sound and Private Joy is the first. Private Joy is could have been um, a kind of, like, three-minute little pop song, and it would have been fine. But the last minute and a half is what makes it, like, it gets to the stratosphere and one of the best Prince songs, in my view. Um, He, and again, this is a very catchy pop song. And then he decides, first of all, he starts singing in the end of it, in the last verse, where he says, "I strangled Val- Valentino. He's been mine ever since." If anybody asks, you belong to Prince. That's in not a falsetto. That's in his natural voice. So that's significant. Then check out that crazy, like bass fills in the middle of it. I'm
1: thinking. I'm saying I'm singing you the thing from something in the water, but they have similar feels to them. Yes, Joy, Annie, Christian are both previews of 1999. Absolutely, and then
2: like he the groove, which is infectious and incredible, collapses into this dissonance with these kind of, it it kind of collapses into like this joyful noise with crazy guitar flourishes and, you know, kind of brings you into Ronnie Talk to Russia. So like Private Joy is a huge accomplishment in my opinion. and I disagree on Doomy Baby.
1: I just think it's the worst Prince single ever. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, at least from, like, you know, like from this undisputably great era all the
2: way up through 93. It bores me to tears. Alright. Lyrically, Me Baby is uh, knows sometimes it snows in April. Let's, let's be real. It's, it's, it's not his best moment lyrically. But the production on this song is defining what be, what the kind of slow jam, quiet storm uh, format of black radio. Yeah, and that's, I'll, I'll
0: just break the tie here very quickly and say, I think that's the defining thing for me is that I, it's, it's even in my notes. Like, it's, it's his first real ballad, I guess, in like two albums, right? And it sounds so smooth. It's like, it's the definitional uh, uh, origin of this sort of slow jam. And so, yeah, lyrically, maybe not the best, but I think musically, it's a, it's it's an accomplishment. Go ahead, Eli. Yeah, and, and okay, so this
2: gets into like a, a sort of, like a, a not nice side of Prince, which is that he was very stingy and at times probably stole credit from his collaborators. Andre Simone, originally born Andre Anderson, was his best friend growing up. In fact, when he left his mother's house, he lived with Andre's family uh, in the basement. And you know Andre was his first real serious collaborator. And there is a very strong argument if you kind of go back and like, there's a lot written on this, and Andre Simone has since given interviews on this. He wrote this song. Um, now, I think he should have, I, I think Simone, Andre Simone should have gotten a co writing credit on it. There is a, I, well, it's one of Prince's biographies in which um, Prince is quoted as saying at the time, I think another member of, of the band says, Why are you doing this, Prince? And he says, Because I'm a star and you're not. Um, so that was the, like less wonderful side of Prince. And it's definitely, you know, you see kind of again and again, there are lots of songs where he should have credited uh, Wendy and Lisa and the revolution for stuff where he didn't do that. And so this is an example of that. And I think it's important to sort of notice to note this, that, you know, it's important to separate the art from the artist, but I just feel that his vocal performance, even though the lyrics are, you know, mundane is incredible. And they, again, like he's, kind of grabbing that Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, Eddie Kendrick's like falsetto champion. Not, I mean, no one's going to ever touch Marvin in my view, but he's right up there. And the this revolutionizes what is this kind of Quiet Storm format. Again, um, it's all over radio and it spawns all these imitators or people like Atlantic Star and Starpoint yeah. and Midnight. There's a whole bunch of groups in the early 80s that are trying to kind of recreate Doomy Baby with its popping bass line that still managed to kind of achieve this incredible intimacy. <laughs> Finally, I would just say there have been orgasms on records before, <laughs> oh. such as Donna Summers' uh, Love to Love You Baby is the kind of classic. I don't know that uh, there's ever been quite a, an orgasm. I mean, like, this the, the legend is that when he recorded "Jimmy Baby, he brought in candles, and, like, you know, all the stuff. This is the part of the song I just find so ridiculous. Ah. It is ridiculous, but I just would say this. If you don't have Do Me Baby, I think Do Me Baby is the first step to getting adore, slow love, crucial, insatiable. All of these like very sexual, brilliant Prince like slow jams. Do Me Baby is again, it's like the archetype. It's like Head is the archetype of like the Prince Funk. Do Me Baby is the archetype type of these kind of modern Prince slow jam, and that for that alone, it's really significant. Couple other thoughts on the album because I love controversy. Um, we're getting what i might what i would call proto-rap from prince you mentioned controversy jeff there's also in sexuality which i think is super underrated great track he's got that great line there are a bunch of double drags teach the kids that love is bad um it's not quite rap but considering it's 1981 and rap is just starting uh i'm impressed that his ear is to the sort of sound of what's coming out um you mentioned ronnie talk to russia i just would say that um he recorded this after Reagan was shot by Hinckley. So it's a little creepy that he sings, Ronnie, if you're dead before I get to meet you. I mean, I don't know. And there's gunshots in the background. Yeah. Um, it's, as I said, Prince's political consciousness not fully formed really. Here. Yeah.
1: I don't think he's thinking through a lot of this stuff.
2: And finally, like I just would say that let's work. I mean, head is the is the pioneering like Prince funk, but let's work like might be even better than than that i just feel that like let's work is such an incredible groove Another F of to Rick James, um, who in the controversy period, Prince's band is opening for Rick James. And depending on who you're reading, they're kind of blowing Rick James off the stage. Rick James accuses Prince of stealing his moves and stealing his sound because like like Rick James is a massive egotist as Prince is. And then at the end of the tour, Rick James. We all saw Chappelle's show. We know what Rick James is. (laughs) like. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Rick James steals Prince's synthesizers, steals the ARPS. And, they him, and then he sends him a note because he uses it for the Garden of Love record saying thanks for the sounds because Prince is like programming all these sounds. That's why they sound so distinctive. And, you know, Rick James is like, fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this on my next record.
1: He <laughs> literally stole his sound. And, yes. And, and not just like like James Brown wanting to imitate David Bowie's fame. Rick actually stole the synth patches. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, he literally stole the synth patches. So I kind of love that story. It just, uh, and then... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You mentioned Annie Christian. Um, that's, I, like, I recognize that production-wise, this is what's coming on 1999. It's really good, but I just, and it sounds like he's singing through, like, a Zoom, like a really <laughs> terrible, like, audio for your face.
1: That's what um, I love. I love that stuff. I, I mean, listen, he could sound normal if he wanted to. work is a fantastic song if i'm in the mood to hear a good prince groove like yeah. like a long sweaty jam which i can actually I have playlists where i'll just put on like you know 10 minute long prince songs and in that case i put on that 12 inch version that you were showing off to mm-hmm. us earlier right that's what you want it's like eight and a half minutes long oh. <laughs> uh, it's great uh but it just sounds so out of place on this album compared to everything else yeah i like, feel you, like it could have been on dirty mind yes right it, 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 it's yes. it's too sweaty it's too r&b and then for me you know like you know the songs that look forward are the ones that have the weird melodies and the very strange chord changes and uses of sequencers and, and you know, Lin drums like Annie Christian and uh, Private Joy, you know. Uh, but I have to say, Scott, I got to say, which of these which which of these songs was your favorite? Was it Sexuality? Was it Anti Christian or was it Jack You Off?
0: It was Controversy,
1: actually. <laughs>
0: that was my favorite song on uh, on yeah. Controversy. Uh, I do think that's the best song here. I, I don't want to spend yeah. an ordinary amount of time because you guys have covered this uh, album pretty uh, pretty, uh, pretty much as much as it, as it needs to be. I would say that, yes, I think Controversy is the best song here. Um, I do kind of like s- Sexuality as, as, as a song. Um Andy Christian worth it for the ab scam reference, right? Not a lot of songs work yeah. the ab scam reference in. Prince does. With, Somebody
2: uh, say gun control. Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> the way he just shouts it out, as I said, it's almost like a sort of naive sloganeering, which which actually makes it charming to me. You know, because it's what, forty years ago now.
0: And okay, Jack You Off, which which Jeff mentioned and I don't think anyone's talked about yet. Uh, I like it. Uh, as a song and the thing i i wonder about i spent the last album talking about how lindsey buckingham had influenced prince and i wonder if it's the other way because i hear jack you off which is this kind of fun you know crazed off the wall melody and i hear i hear a little bit of even like holiday road from lindsey buckingham in in the way it's presented and even later something like go insane which was a few years after this right I, i think there certainly could have been some influence headed the other way too from prince to people like lindsey buckingham who aren't necessarily playing in the in the synth world although he did on some of those solo records too um but but certainly uh i, I think there's some of that happening here i think yes, it's a step down from from dirty mind and as i look back because again guys you know i'm cramming this in two weeks two and a half weeks to try to get through this entire catalog and, and learn i it gave and you it. so many months yes i know but i'm still you know we've got other things to do around <laughs> here so two and a half weeks? Is a pretty good good, good about a time. But what, my point there is only saying when I look back through this collection of Prince albums, I think "Controversy" is the one that I sort of remember the least. Yeah, the songs do not sort of register in my mind even after mm-hmm. three, four listens. I'm not remembering melodies and not remembering hooks. That's probably my biggest takeaway from "Controversy," in that it's not maybe the writing is a little off. It's not quite as 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 memorable as some of the other, as all, really, I think, all the other albums through, through this period.
1: Did you remember anything about 1999, Scott?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you did?
1: Okay, I'm curious, because I thought, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of a featureless album. <laughs> it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to get a hold of, you know? It's a difficult record to throw your arms around. Okay, what happens next, folks? Oh, this is when Prince just goes nuclear. This is, as Eli has been fond of pointing out, the beginning of what is referred to as prince's imperial era all right which is to say he was just almost regal in his perfection this is prince suddenly deciding maybe he uh i theorized that after dirty mind scandalized the world uh, that part of the world that was even aware of it uh, he he said yeah give me an album long buffer before i make my big pop play because all of a sudden in late 1982 1999 drops, and this is no mere album. It's a double album. It's a double album structured like a slap in the face, structured with such purpose, with such intent, and with such success (laughs) that it stands out as one of the most singular double albums. Because, by the way, this is a great double record, but it is an uncompromisingly weird double record. Mm -hmm. The trick Prince performs on 1999 is he puts... The first side of the first t- record of a double album is just three of the most famous singles of all
2: time. <laughs>
1: and that's all it is. And then the side two begins with another really great pop single, but then it also starts turning into something weird halfway through. And then from that point onwards, you're on a roller coaster. And this is not what you were expecting when you started off. I'm
3: going to have to you now. <laughs>
1: is an album that has endlessly fascinated me it is the beginning of a great efflorescence not just in his released albums but also in his b-sides in his outtakes the stuff from this era is as great as everything we have discussed up until this point is this is where the legend of prince first was made so it is only appropriate that i go first with the least familiar person with prince scott what right. is your impression of 1999. I accept this. Because you know, Eli and I are just going to eat this up like a birthday.
0: Of cake. course. So I, I'll at <laughs> least have some things to say before you guys uh, take it all. Is I, I I really like 1999 an awful lot. I like it uh, more than I like it more than the next album. It's uh it's probably going to be in my 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 two albums at the end of of the show. Um, and it is not anything like I expected it to be, and I assume perhaps there are some record-buying, uh, members of the record-buying public in 1982 who feel the same way, right? You, you, you are sucked in by 1999 and Little Red Corvette, and all of a sudden you get something in the water uh, later on, and Lady Cab Driver and these very different things. Uh, I want to get back to Jeff's structure comment in, in a second because I, I have a thought on that. My big takeaway of 1999 is this. 1999 is the gated drum of synth sounds for the '80s, right? So Phil Collins and and uh, Peter Gabriel come up with this gated drum sound, and all of a sudden, everyone's got to have it, and it's on every album, and that's just like a signature sound. 1999, with the amount of synths uh, and the way that he has uh, tweaked them and programmed them and used them all over this album. I mean, it's essentially all synths. There's very little, if at all, you know, organic uh, instruments uh, on the album. He just sparked this entire decade, really, of of synth use in the way that he would sort of uh, uh, make an example, uh, lead the way with these songs on, on 1999. comment um what i said is this so we have in, in journalism we have this uh, you know is the in, you write, write an inverted pyramid if you're writing for print so people can take off the end and you'd still be okay you get the story it's not to say the stuff at the end is unimportant or it's not interesting details but the meat's up top and um i kind of think 1999 is sequenced in like inverted pyramid structure you've got the massively popular poppy hooky hit singles on side one i think side two with let's pretend we're married and, and dmsr is is another killer uh side i think both i mean it's two two songs on a single on one side of an album because they're both eight minutes longer so and then you begin to sort of uh get into the minutiae if you were talking about a story right and, and and you jeff said it's like a roller coaster the rest of the way it, it is it's it, it's in and out and you get like i said something in the water which is this very tense and claustrophobic uh song and and if something like lady cab driver or all the critics love you toward the back end of the album Uh, but that first half is is so fantastic 1999 starts with this computerized mechanical voice don't worry i won't hurt you i only want you to have some fun and so the first voice the second voice The third voice you hear on 1999 is not Prince at all, because the the members of Revolution take the first couple of lines on on the title track 1999. He's the fourth voice, if you can include the computerized voice. The fourth voice you hear on on the album. And the the sheets of sense and that quality they have on 1999 is just indelible, right? And that that is such a signature sound. (laughs) I think the best song and maybe the best song of this entire era is the second song on the album which is, which is Little Red Corvette. It is such a magnificently structured song, well-produced song. Again, the way he's able to to integrate all these different sounds and create this sort of, you know, dreamlike state as you as you open the sound, you get to the chorus and the synth's rev as an engine would. And and in many ways you know, Little Red Corvette is just as explicit as anything else. That I was about to say, couple...
1: Scott, Scott, do you know how old I was before I realized that that song was just a bunch of really filthy double entendres? Just terribly filthy. I was filthy. 26 years old, Scott. I was 26. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I I was like well into adulthood, man. That's how dumb I am. And yeah, that's hilarious.
0: Talking about a pocket full of horses and uh and then following Trojans that...
1: and some of them used. Yes. And that's
0: right. following the metaphor through later on, you know, I felt a little ill when I saw all the pictures of the jockeys that were that were there before me. Uh, it's just as filthy as anything else uh, That had come before it But, but wrapped up in But it's so delicate package.
1: about sneaking that sex in That yeah. it just gets through to the top 40 I
3: guess I should know By the way you popped your car sideways I don't want It's the other kind of person That believes in making out once Love of living fast I guess I must be done shed a pocket full of horses Children and some abuse. But if we're sad night, I guess that makes it all right.
0: Oh, I know Jeff has a lot to say about Let's Pretend We're Married, and so I'll only say that's going to be in my my list of five songs at the end. That is an amazing, amazing accomplishment, the way it starts from essentially nothing and builds, and then you have this just filthy part of the song uh, at, at, at the very end. And the, the message all throughout this is, you know, have fun while you can. 1999 is about the end of the world, Judgment Day, you know, death by nuclear war. Um I don't want to die. I'd rather dance my life away. Let's pretend we're married. Is you know have fun while you can, and then DMSR, uh, dance, music, sex, romance, and it's set to this like militaristic beat. Like this is the, this is the uh, the way that Prince thinks about life. What what's what is most important? We only want to have some fun. Dance, music, sex, romance. Like these are our uh, for, for listeners. These are our orders. They are set to this militaristic. You know. Uh, Very structured beat, dance, music, sex, romance. a few songs in the second half of the the double album uh, i i it's it's tremendous these songs are long if there's something that could be described as a tight jam album like this would be it like th- He's these songs go seven eight minutes long, but they're all deserved. I'm endlessly minutes.
1: fascinated about the this, the structural decisions he made on that this record, which I guess Eli and I are going to yeah. argue about when go, you're
0: done. I'm done. Go ahead, take it away.
1: Oh, he's, okay, here's what we're going to happen. Okay, we're going to have to go round for round. Eli Scott, you're going to yes. ref. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. I want you to ring the bell. Ding. Eli, go first. Why? I don't. We're just going to agree with each other. I think Start we're probably
2: going to agree, like because, I, <laughs> I mean. Again, like, so let's just to put it in, let, I, I, let me do a little pre to get to 1999, because there is a setback that I think kind of drives the passion of Prince as he is making these songs. Because on the controversy tour, he gets this golden opportunity to open for the Rolling Stones mm. in Los Angeles, also on the bill, like Jay Giles band george thurgood of the destroyers and the stones
1: this is on the <laughs> tattoo U tour also known as the last good stones album
2: or the yes. last truly great stones oh, album. right so and and of course and we've already talked about the fact that like when dirty mind comes out and he plays these shows with the roxy mick jaggers there david bowie andy warhol like he he at that point like prince becomes the the darling of all the critics and he's like yeah man like Open for me, and of course, this is a great opportunity because Prince is like from the very beginning. Don't market me as an R&B act. I want to. I'm, I'm rock and R&B. I'm everything. And he decides to go open for the Stones and at gets first. It te- gets his lit- teeth kicked in. Yeah. Yes, and like at first, he's playing some rockers. They're okay, and then he does jack you off. <laughs> and you know what? The Stones fans do not like a black man in negligee singing about jacking people off. Okay, Eli. I've heard this story all my life, and you. Here's the thing: I don't get it because
1: literally four years before this, Mick Jagger was literally riding around on stage
0: on yeah, top of a
1: yeah. giant yes. inflatable penis on the Black and Blue tour.
2: So, what the hell do people do? Okay, it's race,
1: though, right?
2: Yeah, clearly, I know. Obviously. I understand yeah, the yeah. real reason, right.
1: right? Yeah, but I mean, the hypocrisy is hilarious.
2: Right, and then and there's and that and this is the whole weird thing about it, which is that, I mean rock and roll starts as black music and then for some reason by the 70s it becomes you know segregated so rock is for the whites and r&b is for the blacks prince kind of like defines himself as the guy who wants to sort of end all of that but all the great rockers understand that there isn't really a racial divide but not their fans and this is keep in mind like 1981 is a year after the disco demolition stuff and you could say some of prince's music does sound a lot like disco like i want to be your lover and so all of that's kind of in there and he just has like they're throwing you know not just bottles you know that could <laughs> it damage like uh, one of the shows they throw like a fetid chicken in a in a, like you know somebody like they it's really awful and Prince is so distraught after that first show that he doesn't just leave the stage. He goes back to Minneapolis. And Mick Jagger has to personally call him, like Mo Austin calls him, everybody calls him. Des Dickerson, his guitar player, finally convinces him, you got to come back. You can't let them win. He does come back. It doesn't go much better. Um, according to legend, uh, I think it was Bill Wyman's like, hey, kid, you know, you're great, but you got to get used to it. You you can't let the audience define you and everything else like that. But I think that that setback, which Prince took so personally, kind of drives him even more to this kind of creative frenzy. And in this period, uh, Peggy McCrary, his uh, longtime producer, says he is recording literally a song a day. He would do like when everybody else after the gig is like either partying or going to sleep, he would go into the studio at two in the morning and like lay down something like moonbeam levels. Amazing. So he's a vampire. He's not sleeping. He is driven (laughs) to this kind of artistic greatness. And that's what's kind of coming. That's what's going on behind the scenes as he is creating 1999. Okay, so with that said, um, what's fascinating to me about 1999 is that he just gave us this super tight, dirty mind where every song, not a wasted note, he's editing it so well. It's a 30 minute record, as we talked about. And then 1999 is not only a double record, but it's like these, some of these, like four of these songs are like 10 minutes long almost. And he lets it really kind of flow. He wants to like really explore the space. And the thing is, is that he, his music is so great in this period. 1999 could have been more than a double record it could have been like all things must pass it could have been like a quintuple record he has that much amazing material that he has written and and made in this period that he could have made it you know know, he could have put out five discs
1: i was actually planning on addressing all that unreleased stuff along with the b-sides after the album itself that was where i figured we'd set that because there is yes this is this is the moment where
2: it just wow it just everything opens up absolutely us. so okay that's a good point so i'm not going to talk about the b-sides then in this in this i'll just simply say uh just a couple notes um i mean scott you got a lot of this dmsr dance music sex romance i don't know peak prince funk this is uh it's just crazy the synthesizers like. They don't sound like he's, like, so he's using synthesizers on For You, Prince Prince, even Dirty Mind and Controversy is kind of a, like, I'm using the synthesizers to create what would be a horn section, because he doesn't have a horn section. DMSR, I feel like, the synthesizers sound exactly like they're supposed to. These are the synthesizers. This is everything. There's not a wasted note. I love it. Uh, incredible. Something in the Water is one, that I don't know if it's been mentioned, but um, Wow, that drum programming is great. I feel like it's sort of like he he was listening like this is Annie Christian part two, but with better lyrics, and um, it's a better song. And um, you know, it's sparse at times, but it's 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 such a incredible soundscape. And finally, like Lady Cab Driver, wow, um, that beat is a miracle. Lady, cab driver, go. with this album that we get a lot of kind of going forward. And you see it also in the time records of this period. Some of this is the Lynn drum machine with like Prince or maybe Jellybean Johnson playing or 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 of course, uh, not Dr. Z, uh, Dr. Um, Bobby Bobby Z or Bobby Z playing on top of the drum machine. So you're getting these really intricate rhythms that not a single person could play. But if you just listen to the drum track, of lady cab driver it blows your mind i mean what is that um and even though he goes to this whole thing in the middle i don't mind it because the beat is so great where he's like this is for you know politicians who who make war this is for you know this one this is for me that's who that one's for and, and
1: what is he doing he's hate banging a woman by the way We're, i'm gonna get into this part i'm not again.
2: I'm not, I'm not. I'm not into the idea that like he's hate-banging and everything like that. Oh no, I, I full-throatedly
1: endorse it, Eli. I'm, yeah. I'm obviously all in favor.
2: <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's a phenomenal. Inc- it's like this track is just like, inc- and and the weird thing is that I, you know like Purple Rain's coming next, but it's tracks like this which were not really written to be pop radio hits, but they are essential to the Prince canon. This is like what prince's like dance funk is supposed to be about and i can listen to 1999 and still find new stuff um i compared it in one of our emails jeff i think to like his white album uh in that he's just taking so many different kind of chances here it's like if you want to say dirty mind is revolver this is his white album not everything necessarily is perfect but it's all like he's just he's 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 just charting these new boundaries and it's it's uh it's really great um i could go on i like every track on 1999 for different reasons again uh something in the water dmsr and lady cab driver those are like my standouts besides obviously the hits are great but those are those are the ones yeah i want to emphasize how um
1: deliberate how purposeful intelligent and sort of i guess you know, profoundly self-assured a provocation 1999 is as an album it's an album that is almost a little bit of a trick that prince plays on people it is him loading it up front with these three massive hit singles which to me i'm i don't want to say i'm tired of i'll never get tired of hearing little red corvette but you know i've heard 1999 and delirious so many times that eh, i could take them or leave him at this point but that's the bait. That's the bait on this album. And what he does once he's put that little fish hook into your mouth is now that he's got you on the line, is that he's going to yank you on a very strange trip. And then, right once you thought, wow, those three great pop songs, can't wait to hear what's on the rest of this young fellow's fine new album, you flip it over, you get let's pretend we're married. demonstrate to you how he is unapologetically unafraid to be weird and he's weird in so many different ways he's weird while still remaining interesting within the bounds of a normal pop song like on let's pretend we're married which starts just like this great little minimalist post-punk groove that builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And then it gets into this really kind of upbeat, chirpy pop song with like the wee sha sha boo boo yeah, all the hippies sing together. And of course he's talking about his regular sort of, you know, lascivious loves. But you're thinking, this is nice and friendly. And then all of a sudden it just sort of continues going on. You look at the track timing. Wait, this is seven minutes long. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he starts speaking. And then he starts how he talking about he would sincerely like to do something to you. Um uh maybe do something uh maybe remove something from your mouth, I guess maybe is the way I would put it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not gonna, you know, really kind of specify beyond that, but you think, oh, my gosh, this has descended into the most explicit filth, X-rated filth that I can imagine from what I thought was like a top 40 hit single. And then at the end of it, all of a sudden he talks about how, like, I'm going to heaven, man. I'm at peace with my life. I am a pious man. What about you? And you're like, wait, I'm getting a sermon all of a sudden? And you've just realized you've you've crossed through the looking glass. <laughs> once you flip that vinyl, and now you're in
3: Wonderland. Have about me? change the rules to do what i want to do under love with god in the only way she and i know we got to die someday it got crazy you're probably right but i'm gonna have fun every motherfucking night like to fight you're a double drag fool. i'm going, going to, to another life how about you
1: and everything after this is a bizarre sonic exploration people don't talk about how strange 1999 is i think because of those big hit singles their dmssr Does anybody notice that that song ends with a woman shrieking, somebody please help me, somebody stop, help me? Like, uh, uh, what do you think's happening to her? Um, There's a whole section in Automatic where there's just moaning girls. Prince says, I must torture you with my guitar so you will hear, you feel my pain, and they're like moaning, as he's playing a guitar solo. There's some weird things that get explored on these tunes. And then, yet yeah, to me, there's, there's nothing weirder than Something in the Water Does Not Compute, which I have to say has got to be one of my five favorite Prince songs of all yeah. time. This is definitely one of my five favorite from this episode because this is him at his most unapologetically musically weird. The chord changes, duck, and swerve into every place you don't expect it. Those swoops of the synthesizers. Eli, you talked about that drum programming. That clatter is so memorable. But, man, I love the washes of synth. It's yeah. just cold. I feel like I'm, I'm in a William Gibson novel. I'm like it's Neuromancer or maybe Blade Runner. This is the kind of mood I get from this. And this is on an album that had, like, you know, Filthy Sex, had 1999, had Little Red Corvette. And now suddenly I'm in a sci-fi movie. And I'm just stunned that Prince can take me there. Some
3: people think I'm coming. keep 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 The one to the It's been the same be something the and so bad. i got to get to you, baby. He's by the way,
2: in this period, he is obsessed with Blade Runner and erasure head. Exactly, and that's yeah.
1: that's clearly where a song like something in the Water comes from. but by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this and I believe it's Damon Linker who always who emphasizes this that he thinks free is maybe the single most underrated prince ballad of all time, and I think he's got a point yeah that, that this thing just sort of flies under the radar on that that third side uh, and it's just him and his most beautiful this there's no chintz whatsoever. Whatsoever in this, because it's not a love ballad. It's much more of a spiritual. Ballad. It's it's
2: a patriotic
1: song. Yeah, it's 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 a gloriously yeah. pure song in his best falsetto. this record which I think is international lover which again hits all those chintz buttons oh. for me that i don't like i know you like it but like when prince gets to that like oh you can recline your seat and you know like you know like you know he just uses the whole in flight you know like you know spiel <laughs> as like a sex joke and it's kind of funny the first time but i hear those chintzy organs and i'm like eh. you know i don't i don't really need it it seems to me to be the least essential song on an album that is otherwise utterly gripping with it's not just the hits notice those are the songs we've discussed the least okay because it's where he gets odd and bizarre that you see this crazy ability for him to mix you know both pop sensibilities and this it's a singularity he is unique unique people say like oh he's as unique as something else and you're misusing the term unique <laughs> when we use unique with
2: prince man i am confident that we are using it correctly there's only one guy that sounds like this all right i gotta ask you a question here yeah? because you know robert fripp's music much better than me mm-hmm. but do you hear some influence from fripp in just the dissonance and the weird chords sure. that he's layering with this music at this point or like maybe some eno you know what i mean sure absolutely okay. but what
1: you what you do not hear though i will say is that uh, his guitar style never like Fripp because probably no. because he just never seen using the same pedals and effects and things like that no but i'm just <laughs>
2: saying that the, the approach to the song yes. like i think of eno and Fripp, and i'm like okay they did it five years what six years earlier but prince is definitely like hearing that stuff and when you hear something in the water and you're like, wait a second, this is so dissonant, but it kind of works. And like, wait a second, like where and you're talking about those synth waves, and I kind of feel like I'm listening to like an Eno esque record in a weird way.
1: I completely agree. I I, yeah. I hear exactly what you're talking about with those sorts of waves and moods, and also some of the stuff that was never released. Yes. Some of the unreleased stuff, which actually is a great way to segue here. Because as I kept I've emphasized a couple of times here, this is the moment where and also because of this sort of, you know. Posthumous release campaign. The vaults have really opened. You can get a sense that you know Eli was not exaggerating. And it might sound like you know, hey, he's fanboying out here when he says this could have been like a triple <laughs> or quadruple album. He's really not exaggerating, okay? And and the the proof of it is on this 1999 deluxe issue. Uh, fans knew this for a long time, but now it's all out there officially. Uh, And, of course, there are B-sides that start to come out from this era, which just shows you how much material he was producing. Scott, I'm going to start with you because I know you're the one who's the least familiar with this. I sent that little curated set. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to any of that material. I did. did? Well, you have any thoughts on it? Um, Because
0: this is where it all really kind of picks up. I I, I took, uh, as I always do, some notes. Uh, So the things that stuck out to me, I guess I'll say, uh, how come you don't call me? Anymore, oh, yeah. which is uh, from 1982 B side of Little Red Corvette. Jeff help- helpfully points out to me. Jeff's a great yeah. curator of this stuff, but uh, I write
1: my show notes right.
0: Yeah, uh, but that that's a wonderful song. Uh, it sounds nothing like the rest of 1999. I mean, if it, if it made the album, they'd have to produce it in a different way. But it's just a beautiful song with piano and Prince sort of doing that vocal like vamping at at its very finest. Um, Turn it up is another 1999 outtake that. Um, I, I can hear that it could use some pruning. It, it's not a, quite a finished product, but but that big chorus hook is there. You can see how he could turn that into something, or someone else could perhaps turn that into something that would be all over the radio around this time. That's a very good song. And the other one, I think from this era, uh, this 1999 era that I have a note on is Do Yourself a Favor, which is another oh, yeah. long track nine minutes or so and this one probably would have been just fine on 1999 if there were space and it was a triple or quadruple kind of album um you know you could heck add a few more minutes stretch it out to a whole side of an album if you want this is and i hate to steal what jeff wrote about this but it's true it's just kind of the way some of these songs were were written and developed where you, you you lay down this track uh, this, this you know, percussive track with the drum machine and, and the synth track and then begin to work on top of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and I think Jeff knows, we've done enough shows together, I, I don't have a ton of patience for super long songs, much like you don't have patience for super long albums. Uh, you know, some of that Pink Floyd stuff that jammed out to 26 minutes and stuff on Animals, uh, it's really hard for me. <laughs> Almost all of this Prince stuff that, that is stretched to eight, nine minutes, I just feel... Like, he's singularly competent at figuring out what will make a song still vibrant and still interesting, even if you're going to go six, yes. seven, eight, nine minutes long. He knows... Little
1: touches, little yeah. filigrees, little just, little just tweaks here and there, and somehow it maintains your yeah, attention. Th- there's
0: just very little from this era, again, where he's stretching out that I would say... Um, is, is not interesting and doesn't hold my attention. And I, I, I wasn't trying to skip to the next <laughs> song to, to, right. to, to hear something else. He's really singularly talented, I think, in knowing exactly how to make those songs work in the right way.
3: Still
1: i didn't give you all 15 minutes of chlorine bacon skin i mean you'd definitely be skipping to the next song of some of these some of these songs all right eli let's nerd out okay this is this is this is the fun time this is where we get really really into the weeds (laughs) let's try to spend too long on it but okay of this era these b-sides from the night let's just take the 1990 era because it's it's so substantive i can think of at least four songs that i think are amazing but i can think of I'll, i'll try to pick two what are yours
2: well, I mean, I you know, Scott already mentioned it, but how come you don't call me anymore is just up there for the Prince canon for me. Um, it's very hard to pick five songs from this era, but that might be one of them. Um, the fact is, I thought it was the B side of 1999, but if it's the B side of Little Red Corvette, the point remains. That's like Penny Lane "Strawberry Fields" single. You know, it's like because how come you don't call me anymore? Is if you like. I think we all do in a way. If you love that intimate prince like giving you raw emotion and just carrying it on the power of his voice with that piano, that is a sort of perfect style. This is maybe like that's this is the best example of that. How come you don't call me anymore? It's a gorgeous song.
1: there's an alternate version of it. That the might be even idea. better. Right? It might be even better. <laughs> right. it's, it's like stretched out to like six and a half minutes. So, and it's
3: beauty. keep your picture. keep it by my bed. little thing you say.
2: doesn't feel like it should be part of the the 1999 era because it's, it's so spare it's so natural right Right, but mm-hmm. yet it's i mean like it's genius i mean the other one i guess i would say is purple music because ah oh, damn it okay yes that's okay you got it now take it I, take it it's yours I wanna, it's, yours. I will it's so beautiful. It. i am a hardcore prince fan and when you put that list together i had not remembered purple music so i have been like that has been on constant repeat. That's an, uh, it's so eleven
1: minutes long, folks. It's an eleven minute long jam that never lets up on this one beat for the whole time, and you don't get bored. That's it belated. is
2: Erotic City Part One, maybe, but yeah. oh wow, that uh, he's like creating what is electro funk. There's a certain kind of sound in the eighties. Again, Prince is the pioneer here, but there are all these imitators that come out in the mid eighties that are doing stuff that like you associate with it's before rap kind of really gets big it's but this is the stuff that the original breakdancers dancers would sort of like break this is like this was their soundtrack purple music is that kind of like pioneering track it's 1982 that this comes out um and it's ridiculous it's like i can't believe that that i had that had sort of escaped my attention for so long it's, uh,
1: it's so minimalist too yeah I mean, it, 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 it he he you almost feel like at any moment you're only hearing two things, two instruments playing simultaneously. It's just like so spare, and it, it, it reminds me, I guess, in the best way of a, of a group I adore called Can uh, from the '70s, Krautrock. Yeah, um, that have that same or, or Noi. you know. And I think that's kind of where he's going with those those grooves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys, mentioned my favorites, and there are so many from this year you could talk about. Uh, there is a song that is uh, indeed called Vagina, that is sadly a great song, uh, despite that fact that it has that title. But uh, I think, you know, B- Moonbeam Levels is a classic. Oh, for- yeah. It, it, That's it, the other it one. anchored the greatest hits that they released the forever one uh, posthumously. But the one I'm going to have to go with is Irresistible Bitch. It's the B side of Let's mm-hmm. Pretend We're Married. It's technically, I think, actually. Um, it's a purple radio recording. Um, but you know, he had been written earlier. But the reason this will always be my favorite Prince B side of all time is it is one of my all time favorite childhood memories. You see, my friends, I used to ride the big yellow bus to school when I was going to elementary school and we had our bus driver. She didn't take no sass. She was one of those those big brassy black ladies, you know, who would stand up and tell all the kids to shut up and sit down. And we would actually shut up and sit down. She didn't take any Mess from us, but she had a little boombox in the front that she liked to play tunes to, and she, for whatever reason, loved Prince. And one of the songs she had on the little boombox that she played all the time, which you'd be driving us to and from school, was "Irresistible Bitch." And you better believe that a school full of eighth graders knew that we were getting away with murder when we started <laughs> singing along to the song "Irresistible Bitch." So, what I want you to imagine, my friends is a bus full of 12-year-olds with their hands in the air at a stop sign going over like the speed bumps going, Irresistible, bitch! Clap! And we're all like just waving back and forth, having a party while the bus driver's bobbing her head up and down. Good times in Potomac, Maryland when you were 12 years old. Man.
3: Every Friday night I call your butt I'm on the phone a deeper voice answers and says you're not at home now, if you think that I'm a fool, we'll go for a line Then honey, put down all your money, and you win every time bitch. I love the way you walk I love the way you talk And I really dig the way you kiss Oh mama, I wish I could resist All partners ask me why I take so much abuse Why am I so faithful, honey? Why are you so loose? They say, why am I the one who never gets to take you home? But they don't know the things you do to me when we're alone. Irresistible, bitch. I love the way you walk. Irresistible, bitch. I love the way you talk.
0: I, guess, I thought great. I was getting away with something where I would sing The Bitches Back by Elton John, but that's, that's another level right there. This is
1: amazing. I still can't believe it. it just, <laughs> nobody ever ratted her out, man. I just love it. I just love it. Childhood memories are the best. But yeah, great B-side from this era, and it, it, it takes us, I guess, actually to a caesura because this comes out in 1989, 1982 rather, and of course 1999 just, just spins out one big hit single after another. Prince is touring it all up and down. And he's taking his time with what he thinks his next project is. This is big, but he has even bigger ambitions. And then one of the things that he also can't help doing because he has such relentless energy is his side projects. And I guess this is, I think, probably the best place to discuss all the side projects that he gets up to during this era. Um, you know, songs that he gives away. But I guess first and most importantly, we can't do an episode on Prince and the early years of Prince
2: without discussing the time. Eli, let's talk about the time. Let's definitely talk about the time. Just a
1: little bit, but they're great.
2: Um, Yeah, so I would just start off with the time to note that uh, the critic Nelson George, who I really like, has said that he believes the best funk group of the 1980s was the time. And the time was so good that when they were opening on the 1999 tour for Prince, eventually Prince got jealous because they were so damn tight. and In the same way that Rick James got jealous of Prince. Exactly. And and the thing is, is that this was never supposed to be. Because Prince, again, we have to separate the art from the artist, is just kind of a controlling prick. And the (laughs) first, he puts the time together. He deliberately makes Morris Day, who is a drummer, the front man because he wants to control everything about the time. And so he just thinks, yeah, I'm going to, like, throw these guys I know from Minneapolis. And they're going to they're gonna be this band, and I'm going to write all their music, and I'm going to tell them what to wear, and I'm going to do all of this. And you know what? He was the- obsessed with the idea of being, like, this little, like, star is born impresario type who was,
1: like, kind of like Bobby loved to, like, oh, I'm going to create these, you know, these young stars and, like, push them out and, like. He had this sort of—I'm almost like a Hollywood fantasy in that respect—that he could never let go of, and it's right. going to keep. You're going to see it over and over again as we'll see.
2: And by the way, like some of this is the fact that, like, as a, at a young age, he, you know, I think as a boy, he goes to see James Brown and his peak, and is impressed by the control that James Brown has of this entire show, and like he definitely has has James Brown in the back of his head. Uh, you know, I think all the time, like, it's, he's an he's influence. Not the best on- person to idolize in terms. No. Of- <laughs> right. He's proud, not notoriously not a nice guy. So here's what what Prince did not count on. What he didn't count on is the fact that the people that he brought into the time were it was the opposite of like Vanity Six, none of whom were really musicians at first. Everybody he brings into the original lineup of the time are like outstanding musical geniuses almost. You've got Jelly Bean Johnson the drums, who's incredible. You've got Jesse Johnson who goes on to like kind of have a pretty good, modest kind of career as a soloist but as a great guitar player. And you've got Jam and Lewis and they are such a great band and they have lots of ideas and Prince like he's stifling them. He's writing everything for them. He's telling them like what they have to do. He's probably not paying them enough. He's demanding all this stuff from them. There's a famous story. I love the story, which is that Jam and Lewis are in the time and they decide that they're going to take like one week and they're going to go and they're going to help produce the SOS band in Atlanta. Prince hears about this and basically accuses them of like giving away like their trade secrets and kicks Jam and Lewis out of the band, you know, which was a great thing for them because then they go to LA and they become these incredible producers. And then
1: they really do give away their trade secrets.
2: <laughs> they really do give away exactly. Um so I mean, I freaking love the time, and they're they're you can hear like you could definitely hear Prince in this music and Prince is like the writer in this period. Prince creates another persona named Jamie Starr, which is Prince, but then he denies it. And, you know, Jamie Starr is the producer and the engineer and all this stuff. Uh, and they're having a lot of fun with it. But then you like, just, I I don't know, if I just pick out, it's a few of the time tracks, you, everybody knows the bird and jungle love some of the lesser known that I really recommend seven, 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 listen to that drum track that is nuts it's one of of the greatest drum tracks you'll ever hear one of the greatest drum tracks ever here and it's not all it's it's both drums and like lynn effects but they it sounds so seamless you would think that the drummer had like seven hands or something like you know what i mean like it's it's amazing um that's that's one. Uh gigolos get lonely too is a great Prince ballad. You can hear that version the Prince version
1: on um Originals,
2: yeah. Originals which is I I Posthumous
1: kind of, Relief which I'm, I'm, I'm if you we'll talk about some of those songs actually in a second though.
2: Yeah, I mean I I I like the Time version
1: better. Way better. Way better. Yeah, I mean that's, way better. that's the thing like the the, the Time the time obviously labor under the shadow of prince dominating their first album he plays every single instrument morris day literally just like does the vocals and it's all prince it might as well just be a prince side project but by the second one and then especially the third one they're their own band and actually like those two the more if i were going to say like this is not a time episode we won't be doing time experts but like what time is it in ice cream castle are both great fantastic yes albums. all right but prince was not done. Okay, no. he kept on wanting to like. He he had this fantasy of doing like girl groups. He loved girl groups. He wanted to do like Vanity, Apollonia Six, Sheila E. He would find these beautiful ingenues who he could, you know. And let's be honest, he also probably wanted to sleep with them because let's be he, there oh, were he no did. ugly members of Prince's retinue. Okay, I I, I it would oh, be made. By the
2: way, one other thing about the girl groups when yeah. he's forming Vanity Six, you better believe that he's thinking of the Mary Jane girls. <clears throat> Which is oh, sure. Rick James's girlfriend. Right. He's yeah. like exactly. I'm gonna outdo them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And also he's giving away
1: songs to like, you know, artists who simply catch his fancy. So like, you know, he falls in love with Susanna Hoff's because he sees the bangles. Right, and who wouldn't fall in love with Susanna Hoffs? She's gorgeous. She's still gorgeous.
0: Robbie Fulks liked Susanna Hoffs.
1: I mean, who doesn't? I mean, you'd have to be, like, blind or, like, you know, you officially a corpse to not like her. She's a great singer, too. And so what, what does Prince do? He gives her Manic Monday. You know, he gives uh, uh, Nothing Compares to You. First to uh, another one of these girl groups or these sort of, like, pet projects that doesn't work out. Finally, later to Sinead O'Connor. What do we have thoughts on like this era where Prince is just handing over gold to other artists because he can't?
0: Just going back through the songs that I know, I think Manic Monday, the Bengals took it and made it better. I, I, you know, hearing uh, Prince's version during uh, prep, I, I think the Bengals version is better and it did go to number one and actually kept a Prince song. Was it Kiss, maybe? Kept it, kept it out of the top spot. Prince kept himself out of the top spot by giving away uh Manic Monday.
3: These are the days when you wish your bed was already late. It's just another Manic Monday. Ooh, ooh, I wish it was Sunday. What
1: year he, write he wrote it in '84, but I think the 86. Bengals didn't record it until late '85. Yeah, I think '86 okay. would be on the charts. That could be wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. You got the the glamorous life with which uh, Sheila E. took and had a huge hit with. And, and Jeff mentioned this on the on the uh, information he sent along. And I I also would, you know, my ear says it's true. It sounds like the exact same backing track with just new vocals slapped on for the Sheila E. version. I actually like and I like Prince's version better which is essentially just saying I like his vocals better. It's the only difference between the two versions of the song but I do think that Prince By is... the way,
1: that's a damn good song. Yes, okay, it is. Oh, like, yeah. like, oh, we're yes. just talking about these songs sort of blandly like everyone knows Manic Monday. <laughs> everyone knows <laughs> The Glamorous Life. The Glamorous Life is a fantastic hook with saxophones unusual for a Prince song driven by saxophones.
3: Everybody knows from the coy little wink The girl's got a lot on her mind She's got... Thoughts, big dreams, and a big Mercedes sedan. What I think this girl, she really wants to be in love with a man. She wants to leave the cameras like she do not need a man's touch. She wants to leave the cameras like the love. It ain't much.
0: And then uh, I, I mean the other one that everyone would know is "Nothing Compares to You," which was written in what '84, which would have been like Purple Rain era, and, and it sounds like Purple Rain. I mean, yes, that mood, yeah. it does. And I, I I think I mean Prince's version of "Nothing Compares to You" is definitely different enough from Sinead O'Connor's version that it can kind of exist on, at its own. It's heavier. It has this big bigger bass line, these dramatic stabs. Like you said, it does sound as if it would have slid alongside something on Purple Rain and, and would have lived all right. Um, it, you know, the iconic version, of course, is Sinead O'Connor's, but there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong about the Prince version of Nothing Compares to uh, You.
2: I would argue the iconic version is the version on the Hits compilation. That live one with Rosie, with Rosie Gaines? Gaines? Yeah. That's I think the one actually, for me.
1: See, now different opinions on political yeah. beats i <laughs> think i'm the third person with the third view i think it's that one on originals <laughs> that original demo version that's the one
3: it's been so lonely without you here i'm like a bird without a song
1: Had such an overflowing of talent at this time, so like he finally succeeded. He he made it. He broke broken big into the crossover charts. No longer just the R and B charts. He is a pop smash. What's he gonna do now? Well, God, when he negotiated his original contract with Warner Brothers, he had because there was a bidding war between Warner's and some other bit labels. He was able to like you know make some funky stipulations. One of them was. I get to make a movie. And that's what takes us to Purple Rain, which begins as some disparate threads in his mind, some musical thoughts and then turns into a project about well, I mean it's a thinly semi thinly veiled semi-autobiographical story of himself. I mean it's not really the kid in the film Purple Rain, played by none other than Prince, I might point out, is not Prince, but it's like a simulacrum of Prince. The movie I've never had much time for. Scott hasn't seen it. Eli thinks it should be released by the Criterion <laughs> Collection. The I album his best movie. It's it, not a great which movie. Which is a it's, very relative term. I mean it's it's, it's better good than enough. it's <laughs> It's better than Under the Cherry Moon, I suppose. Yes, and, and that's certainly better than Graffiti Bridge. Um, yeah, also true. Also true. Not as good as the Batman, though. Although Prince didn't technically appear in that. Anyway, the point is well, nobody can claim that Purple Rain, the album itself, isn't a masterpiece. This is the one that made him huge. This is the one that is indelible. This is the one where you know five songs on the album already from memory, um and the other three that you don't know are equally as good. Um, this is an album that, ironically enough, uh, Scott doesn't like that much. And so we're going to open with Scott. Scott, I want you to tell us why Purple Raid actually just never made it that much for
0: you. Yeah, I and I think this is also one of the reasons why um, Prince was sort of off, off my radar, or at least wasn't uh, on, on the list of artists to really dive deep into, is that this is his best-selling album by a substantial margin, right? I mean, it's like 18 million copies in the, in the U.S., um, a lot of this stuff uh, never really stuck with me, and I, I just have to say out front, because I know I'm, I'm going to get blitzed for this, but that's okay, the title track is the one that I probably like, not not the least on the album, but of, of the ones that people sort of know, man, Purple Rain, the song, has never done it for me. I don't know if you guys, so I'm going to try to hopefully maybe tell Jeff something he doesn't know about Prince, and you can stop me if if you do know, so... I was reading um, that before Purple Rain the song was released, he actually called a meeting with Jonathan Cain from Journey and later Bad English and elsewhere and played him an early version of Purple Rain. And he said to Jonathan Cain, he said, look, I know, you know, the chords here, the chord progression is really close to Faithfully by Journey and I want to make sure you guys aren't going to sue me for stealing your song. (laughs) Jonathan Cain said, no. You're, you're fine. It's a great song. It's going to be a big hit. Don't worry about us suing you over Purple Rain. I never meant to come. I don't know if you knew that story.
1: Apparently. I didn't want to interrupt you, Scott, but I knew it. All right, so I, I have nothing As new know, to <laughs> add to a the conversation, story. I guess. Uh,
0: so but the, that's sort of how steeped Prince had become in sort of even the rock and roll world, that that's something he, he had written is so close to you know corporate rock icon's journey. He felt it was close enough to get their approval on it. Um, the one song that I think is Barnon, Slam Dunk, classic even i someone who doesn't like purple rain the album all that much can't deny is when Doves cry that is one of his absolute best songs from start to finish the way it begins with the, you know the, the tribal sounding drums those kind of signature prints like knocks the synth knocks uh you want
1: you want my, you know my favorite instrument on When Doves cry is scott what is that the bass the bass it's the best instrument on it. You know why? Because it's not there at all. <laughs> and that's what makes that song so amazing, is that the whole thing is completely bassless? The thing is just the Lindrum, and it's just the guitars and his, you know, the synths, the plinky synths. And then it's only when you go back and you listen to it, like, you know, the third, fourth time, you realize there's no low end, mm-hmm. which is what makes it feel so skittery. It, it makes it feel so nervous. And
0: it probably also... Such
1: nervous energy in Windows Cry.
0: Also highlights because I hadn't considered this before but it probably also highlights the way he sings that song too you know after years and years of being in his in his falsetto when Dub's cry is uh, you know fairly low in yeah, his he register.
1: Sings it in his normal range yeah right, and, and without exactly.
0: that without the bass being prominent in the song that probably makes that stand out even more so than usual too uh so th- I mean that's one that I think is is undeniable um let's go crazy which kicks it off is this I mean, it's essentially kind of the, the, the 1999 for Purple Rain, right? It's this big, let's have fun, uh, we're all going to die one way or the other, so let's rock while we're here. It it, it kicks off, I, I don't know, if, uh, I know Jeff has a very young son, I don't know about Eli, but you know, my kids wanted to go see Sing 2 when it was in theaters, and the opening song of Sing 2 is the... Animated cartoon version of "Let's Go Crazy," which I am,
1: and they actually open with like "Dearly Beloved." We are gathered here together to get through you know this what? thing called life. I
0: think they do actually.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you, you, got you can't to. do it without. That, that's it. iconic.
0: But it's one of those things. I don't think that would have happened. That would have been licensed to sing to if in fact Prince were still with us. Uh, but yes. probably, not.
1: The, probably uh, not. Prince wouldn't let use Elvis. Elvis Costello wanted to use a sample from Pop Life for the bridge. I burned.
0: Yes, I, I read about that, yeah.
1: And, and you, if you know the song, it's a really good song. You you can hear where the pop-life chord sequence would work on the song, but instead Prince was just like, no. Even to Elvis Costello, who's <laughs> like, you, you think that guy
2: has cred. Prince was just like, you yeah, buzz off. Did he also and tell And MC Hammer gets to use Soft and Wet. Anyway.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah. did he tell what? Weird Al no, too? Is that... I, is that the one big star that told the one person Almo? who
1: said no I mean it wouldn't shock me because that that, that you know Prince is obviously we'll, we'll talk about this in our third episode when Prince confronts the internet but that's <laughs> that that comes for that comes for another day so um, but yeah you were talking about you know let's go crazy let's and, go
0: crazy and, uh, and you, yeah and um, you know I I would die for you I think is I mean I know you're gonna rip, rip me it's fine it, it's an it's an okay song um, you go go through here and it's it's Prince's at this point, at least for Purple Rain. I would say it's not like it's a different Prince, but he's he's adjusting the level of Prince you get. Um, it's <laughs> you know, prinsocity? The prince, uh, yeah, the princeosity level is less than it has been previously. It's, which,
1: you know, it's, it's like it's like motor oils. This is a low <laughs> princeosity. This is a high princeosity album. You
0: know, right. the, the the difference between being you know hoarding as hell on the pressed <laughs> albums and just sort of being. <laughs> like really erotic on this right. album. Like they, they, it seems like a small difference, but it's that kind of difference that, that allowed him to sort of cross over in different areas with, with, I think that this album. Um, and then of course you have a song like, like Darling Nikki, which is the one that that's the one that got uh, Tipper, that Gore's Tipper attention, Gore attention, right? So that, I mean, it's not all that, that Princeosity is higher on Darling Nikki than perhaps it is on other parts of the album. Um, he to, I
1: mean, that's a funny thing. That's like the, the one song where he really kind of goes back to like, some of I, I, I always thought it was funny. It's like you know, typical were was so offended by Darling Nikki. Did she ever buy 1999? Right. <laughs> As I just talked to you guys about, it's like that is that is a very dark album. It's like my God, she must not have. She must have. Like you can tell when Prince finally broke through to like white senatorial. Right, right. Yeah. It's right around the time of 1984, <laughs> and it's Purple Rain because if she had only known about the guy wearing a codpiece on Dirty Mind, she would not have been
0: shocked. Dirty Mind, Mo- or not Dirty Mind, Mo- Dar- Darling Nikki, though, is a good song in and of it itself, is. right? I mean, it, the, yeah. that, that sort of loop, uh, loping backbeat, the, 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 the tense arrangement. Vocally, he's just bouncing all over the place. I almost hear it, I mean, I wouldn't say it directly this way, but it's almost kind of swampy in a way, in, in that it's constructed. Um, I hear almost like a, a bluesy backbeat to it in, in behind.
3: She took me to her castle and I just...
0: bunch of things happening all at once you have a double kick drum madness uh toward the end of the song uh that is one I, I i do like here too it's just i you know i know i'm gonna be in the minority this is just one i feel like i feel like uh, when we talked about smashing pumpkins and i, I said uh you know they're mature, not sure Rock but the big uh album which of course i can't think of right now i did really love it and that's one of the reasons i kept smashing pumpkins away for a long time, but I feel that way about Purple Rain. I don't really love it, and it's kind of one of the reasons I have pushed Prince away for a long time. And that's my fault. It's my problem. What? I learned better. I find
1: this inexplicable, but I'll, I'll permit it. I'll permit it because you know you've been such a trooper <laughs> on a journey that is is not even fully oh no one third that's of the way. A long way to yet. go. No, no. So Eli, uh, you know, I was worried because you, know, you- had I know I show don't... notes, and you didn't really get through to me
2: with your thoughts about Purple Rain, so I was concerned that you might think this was well, not a good fairness, album. Well, in fairness, Jeff, your notes on Purple Rain were heck of an encore. So. Right. <laughs> heck of an <laughs> encore in 1999. Yeah, yeah, that was that was all I said. So all right, so let's just start with a few. Can we just take a step back and notice that the guy who is pushing the boundaries in computer influenced dance music? is also in this period writing arena rock anthems, Manic Monday pops. I mean, he's the range of what Prince is able to not only do competently, but really well and maybe better than everyone else is jaw dropping. So that to me is sort of the story of Purple Rain because there's a lot of different stuff on here. I want to focus on a couple tracks. Let's start with the opening. Let's go crazy. For five albums, Prince is insisting, I am not a black artist, I'm not a white artist, I'm not rock, I'm not R&B, I'm all of it, don't try to define me. Well, this is the statement song that is rock, dance, R&B all together, and it comes off brilliantly. It's We've all heard it a gazillion times, but I never grow tired of it. I think it's one of, it's just brilliant.
1: Do people I... properly locate that organ sound? I feel like people culturally are, do not, who don't understand Midwestern Christianity, don't know where that sound comes from. That that particular chintz tone on the organ is yeah. it's it's Sunday Pentecostal slash evangelical church uh, on the home organ. I I don't remember what the brand is, but it has that cheap Wurlitzer sound to it, um, and that's why it's you know dearly beloved. We are gathered here to get through this thing called life. That's revival preaching and that again is also a black and rural thing and also an evangelical thing but weird cultural thing to just bring right in at the front of uh an album that is i guess almost as i to call it cosmopolitan and it's weird
2: Yes, and then, like, again, I know we've talked about it, but, you know, he's shredding on the guitar here. Again, yeah. proving he's a guitar god. So let's go crazy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Computer Blue. Oh, which is oh, oh, yes, yes. Like, yes. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> um, that is only, like, four minutes of if you go to the uh, – deluxe edition of purple rain you find what's called the computer blue hallway speech listen to that whole thing that's a that's and that it's also like this album is where he's really collab he's beginning to really collaborate with his band the revolution in a more meaningful way um and you can kind of hear everybody on computer blue the longer version but that one is 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 great okay let's point something out here though
1: this is the point where like almost everything that prince has recorded up until this point has been himself alone Just overdubbing. Every now and then, like, Dr. Fink will show up. Matt Fink, who's his touring keyboardist and has, you know, he gets those credits on some songs because he'll play an organ here or there. But it's all him. Purple Rain is the first Prince album where there are actually, like, a band playing on it as opposed to just him yes. alone. Computer blue is one of those songs. And the thing about that song is that the editing is is so brilliant because okay, you know, we, that's the 12 minute there's even a there's a 16 minute long version actually out there as well. Um <laughs> you don't need it. The editing is brilliant. Every single thing that needed to be taken out and compressed was compressed and at 4 minutes it's the most dense musical thing yes. that Prince has recorded to this moment. I don't even know what this is. It doesn't sound it's nothing funk or R&B about it. Is it pop? Is it rock? Is it anything? Is it sci-fi? It's sci-fi. It sounds so completely beamed in from another planet. This is why I didn't understand Scott when he says like, "Oh, I am tired of Purple Rain." How could you get tired of a song like Computer Blue? Computer Blue where, you know, it opens with that little dialogue, "Wendy, yes Lisa <laughs> is the water warm enough I mean that's just hilarious you've got to laugh at that and then it goes in doo, and then Prince yeah. gives that but it's the guitar solo at the end the guitar solo at the end is the you know, of all these guitar heroics moments people will talk about in Prince's career I'd say number one that's it has never been topped in my opinion
2: it's i i I, it's great um really quick um interesting kind of further on purple rain um it's absolutely true that he called up journey and said you know it's kind of like faithfully but the genesis of this is at this point alan Leeds, who was james brown's tour manager kind of joins the prince camp and he asks alan Leeds you know i think he's like he's looking at bob seger or something he's like why is bob Seeger able to pack all these arenas yeah. and alan's yeah. like well he writes these anthems he's like you know rock anthems and that he's like oh well i could do that and then he writes purple rain so i mean that <laughs> <laughs> just sat down one afternoon to say oh okay let's try oh that. bob Seeger. oh right okay i could do that sure against he- the wind
1: purple <laughs> rain you know you can hear it actually if you think about it
2: this, I just, the final thing I just want to mention on Purple Rain, like, just go get it. It's phenomenal. It's, it's like, you have, I feel like you have to include it. We're, I felt like for this episode, for the first one, we're really only picking one album plus Purple Rain. (laughs) So um, you, you know, the beautiful ones um, that blows me away. He writes this because he is having, he's deeply in love with Wendy Melvoin's sister, Uh, Susanna for this period and this is a song for her and um you know I mean the talk about his sex balladry um this is superior to Do Me Baby it is maybe his best just sort of sex song as opposed to love song uh love ballad but um and the production on it again is just mind-blowing um the uh you know like it's, anyway, I, I, I can't say much more about it. it's just it's incredible. Uh, I, I love, I love I love purple rain front to back. Um, I mean Jeff, you, you probably have more to say so well you <laughs> know what I
1: don't, I don't know how much more I have to say in specific, as much as I have to say in general because I think that this is an album that we just needs to be appreciated for how bizarre it is that this could be as world conquering a record as it was think about who this man was it's a five foot two wildly eccentric black guy got to admit that race still plays, plays an issue here in like the early to mid 80s singing about explicit sex for everything up until this point in his career suddenly becomes you know right up there with bruce springsteen all right you know is his american is apple pie bruce springsteen and michael jackson and now this little Dwarf and weirdo, Prince. <laughs> it's a miracle that this happened. And it happened simply through sheer force of will. That's the thing. You can never at any point really say, Prince got lucky. You can't say that. I can think of so many artists, oh man, their lucky break. Prince got unlucky sometimes. Prince made some bad decisions, actually, at sometimes. And he just dug himself out of them. Because he was so dogged, so sheerly determined to conquer the world, that I, I almost feel like, it was inevitable. It just seemed like such an inevitable ascent to this place to where he got here that um that I think it's often unappreciated how bizarre it is that this guy, this iconic guy, think of the cover of Perg and he's sitting on one of those big kind of I don't know what that style of bike is. I just call it the 80s bike because it, it it feels like that the, the giant front it's not like a it's not like a Harley Davidson. It feels like a you know like a very kind of you know
2: it's like a hog Yeah,
1: it's a very different style of bike, but then he's in the purple jacket, and it's rainy and steamy outside, and then the big scratched-out letters, purple rain. You think, like, man, only in the Reagan 80s could this kind of thing (laughs) happen. Um, But there are so many little choreographed details of this album that just go unappreciated. You know, take me with you. Oh yeah, it's just a little almost. It, 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 I didn't mention that one,
0: but I, I do like that one.
1: See again, I was thinking. Scott says he doesn't like. How could you not like? You know the urgency with with it with which it starts. You know the do 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 Again, it almost feels like action movie music, <laughs> but then it goes into this great little string ballad, and it has these little touches that just make you laugh, like with the with the sort of the puckishness where Prince sings your sheer perfection and then you hear like I Wendy or Lisa says thank you in the background and there's a little like a little kiss sound just brilliant little touches arrangement touches that make an otherwise already perfect melody just pop right off the
3: page How can we spend the night at
1: almost amazing how quickly you can exhaust an album talking about an album that is you know basically so singular that everything about it that needs to be said has already been said i'll tell you something i'd like to say something about are the b-sides from purple rain well
2: yeah the b-sides are so good yes that it's almost like if you made the if you made a purple rain b-sides record it would be almost as good as purple rain that's that's the and, and of
1: course this whole era ends up bleeding over into the next album anyways this is all continuum okay. here we're on right yeah but Eli what were you gonna say take your picks
2: well I mean she's always in my hair uh like I, I think don't know it that ends up being like on Raspberry Beret a little later yeah okay you're right you know what I'm I i, I I'm sort of maybe missing out but, I'm but, thinking of 17 days and oh, particular 17 as, days as is as this
1: one of the most singular like that should have been on the album you can see why it wasn't because the album has no fat. You
3: know?
2: There's Erotic City, which is a little bit of a tribute to Parliament Funkadelic, but it's not like Parliament Funkadelic because it's stripped down and so kind of, it sounds like future Parliament Funkadelic, and there's a reason why Erotic City is this incredibly sought after B-side and all of these Prince fanatics, and to this day you will hear it in dance clubs because it's an incredible dance track erotic city feels a little as as i said i thought purple music is like that's the proto erotic city but erotic city is it's like that's a fully formed version of like a certain kind of prince dance track and that's a b-side to this I, i mean it's that stuff that that's the kind of thing that like really blows me away about how how prolific he is in this period um that you know he again like he's not sleeping he's just continually continuously recording stuff but the other thing is, and you got this right, Jeff, is that Purple Rain is also where he begins to trust his band, The Revolution. And you can really hear The Revolution on these tracks as well, which makes it distinct from the stuff that precedes it, I think. It doesn't feel as
1: dramatic anymore. And by the way, you know, for the blue noses out there, the censorious types, the uptight ones, I want to point out when, it's, when Prince is singing on Erotic City, he is singing – Funk so pretty, you and me. And he's not saying that other <laughs> thing that again, your dirty mind and only your dirty <laughs> mind alone is making you think he's saying. So like, you no, know, please get your mind out of the gutter box, walking, Maybe we can
3: make some time pretty you and me. Erotic City come alive.
1: And this is sort of any final thoughts on the whole purple rain era, which of course just clearly does not seem to have clicked with you in the same way It has for us
0: it uh, it didn't the, the 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 B-side or the, or the outtakes that uh, You guys mentioned 17 days is the one I guess I would point at and say that that would have put snugly on purple rain I would have liked it uh, Maybe I would have liked the album a little more if that would have been on uh, on purple rain I think that's that's a really wonderful wonderful song um, You know it, it's weird I really like 1999, and I actually really like what's coming next with Around the World in a Day. It's like just this middle portion that doesn't strike with me, and I, 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 I'm sure it's a fault with me and not with Prince, but but that's where we are.
1: You know, it's funny actually. We'll maybe let you talk first about Around the World in a the Day, then. But before we get to that, I guess the, you know this is the part where I think maybe. You know, I know Eli was really eager to talk about this, and I think this is where it fits, is the, the famous Michael Jackson rivalry with Prince. Uh, and why does it fit here? Because this is where USA Africa, the yes. world happens, right? Of course, we all know what happens. First of all, Bono actually saved Africa at Live Aid <laughs> but uh, they needed more help. And so we all got together and pitched a helping hand in, and we, of course, did USA for Africa – doing we are the world and everyone knows it it's like one of those things that's sort of gone down in history is one of like the funny cringe videos where like your bob dylan is singing the chorus and you look at him and he has this look <laughs> on his face like what am i doing here why am i here it's because it's 80s bob dylan at his nadir too so he's probably just not all there and prince was invited to sing on this multi mega star session and he declined it was a huge scandal how dare prince he's Prince's, you know it's classic prince who just thinks he's bigger than everybody else he thinks he's better than the rest of us and you know what i know why prince declined because he could see a piece of crap when he heard one because <laughs> it's not a good song i wouldn't sing all that if i were prince but he did something even nicer for them his way of diffusing the tension is he donated a song for them. and the song is called for the tears in your eyes and i actually think it's one of the most underrated Prince songs of all time you can only the actual one that he gave to USA for Africa on that 1985 album it's never even been released on CD to the best of my knowledge I've got a copy you don't need it though because you the re-recording he did for MTV like a month later is on the hits in the b-side set and it's just him and Wendy and Lisa and it's them singing one of the most beautiful and haunting guitar ballads he's ever written in his career. I don't know, Eli, if you are a big fan of this one, but this is like one of those that will be making my list.
2: Well, I, I do like For the Truth It's not going to make my list, but I, I want to just fill in a little bit more on the story because it's so great. Yeah. Now, first of all, I have mixed feelings about the song We Are the World because I do think it's a perfect expression of American hegemony. Um, so I appreciate the message. I agree with you. It is a sort of generic, style anthem. Now, the way the story has gone with this is that they reserved a slot right next to Michael Jackson for Prince uh, in the the recording session for We Are the World. And because Prince was in L.A. at the time. And Prince said, I'm not going to sing, but I'm happy to provide a guitar solo to which Quincy Jones said, either you sing or you're not on the album. He said, fine, I'm not on the album. He's still in L.A. At the time, his entourage is telling him, hey, you know, tonight, Prince, maybe just, like, hang out at the hotel. Don't cause a scene, because if you're going to be not going to the We Are The it it'll it's kind of a bad look. Prince is like, screw that, and decides <laughs> to go out to a club with his enormous bodyguards who proceed to get into a fight with patrons at some club. He makes the paper. So the, the story is... Prince has enough time to go clubbing until three in the morning, but can't show up for 45 minutes to sing on We Are the World and help starving African children. (laughs) I think he made the right artistic decision. I (laughs) think he did make the right artistic decision. And I love the fact that he's just like, at one point, I think he tells a reporter, I just don't like the song. And he like, there's a whole bunch of stuff about how all of the artists are there to help like the starving children of africa but there's like you know caviar and lobster for all the artists who are in attendance and stuff like that um i just think it's like it's it sort of defi- like and prince can get away with it because he is the most important like musician musical artist in when they're recording this in 1985 so he can do whatever he wants and um you know that's well, like got I- springsteen to sing on it i thought he was equally as important but yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, it's about right, though. He gets away with You know, he also, as I said, I, I emphasize, he gets away with it because he actually does like turn around. It's like, oh, by the way, just to show you how bad your song is. Here's what a good song is.
2: <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. I know. He's and like, he gives him a really good one. Many it.
3: people came all around. This man. It's like, listen, it's not even like I'm being
1: just here. I'll give you a much better song than the one that you're anchoring your album with. And it is very much in keeping with what he would be doing on his next record. And Hold I on, know... before
2: before you guys say, Yeah, despite all of this, Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones still go to Prince and ask him to yes! are on bad in the video. yes And Prince then diss them saying that song starts with your bud is mine. Now I'm not singing that to Michael, and Michael better not be singing that to me. Yeah. I'm like, I mean it's just I
0: rain. I love that story. We told that yeah. story of the Michael Jackson episode. I will say Jeff should be actually Jeff should be pretty pissed off at Prince for not doing We Are The World even if he thought it was a crap song because do you know what happened because Prince did not do We Are The World? What happened? Huey Lewis got his line. If not <laughs> no, for Prince, right, yeah. if not for Prince backing out, Huey Lewis would not have been on We Are The World. So
1: listen as far as far as regrettable lines go I'll take Huey Lewis's line and we are the world <laughs> over Bono's line and do they know it's Christmas <laughs> You know where he says like you know that they probably wish they were dead <laughs> they
2: could know how how unfortunate they really are That's right Yeah, yeah. but by the, by the by the way um yeah. I hate to break it to you guys but Ethiopians have known it was Christmas longer than anybody <laughs> living in England Right oldest one of the oldest Christian churches
3: <laughs> Exactly <laughs>
1: well aware it's funny all right well Scott this brings us to the final album of this period and it is weird because it's sort of a continuation on from the sounds of of purple rain I once again point out that it's hilarious that Scott doesn't like purple rain because he's really fascinated with an album that I otherwise find to be it's an interesting document but I just think it's a compromised record called around the world in a day Open. This is the one that everybody refers to as Prince during his Beatles phase, his Sergeant Pepper's phase, and I think that's crudely reductionist. But uh, there is something to be said for his, you know, increasing love of exploring psychedelia, things like you know, sitars and tamboras and things like that. Scott, again, you, you really had a positive reaction to this one, so I'm interested in hearing your voice. Okay, ready, go, and then I guess Eli, you'll follow up next. Okay, yeah, something like that.
0: So Eli said a couple of times in past albums how how there were songs that were going to point you directly toward the sound of the next album. A lot of times they came at the end of the record. There is a song on Purple Rain that I like a lot that I think sort of leads us to more of the sound of Around the World in a Day, and that's the one that Jeff had highlighted, Take Me With You. I think there is a lot of Take Me With You that is carried over to Around the World in a Day. And I guess this, you know, Prince could have toured on Purple Rain forever like Bruce Springsteen did, uh, like Michael Jackson did on Thriller and Springsteen did did for Born in the USA. And he didn't want to do that. Uh, He essentially cut the tour short and wanted to get back and, and do another album, which is why you see a quick follow up, you know springsteen went what 83 to 87 without an album and michael jackson 84 went, to 87 Eight yeah. forty seven. jackson was even longer from thriller to bad and prince said well i i don't want it to worry. i i want to go make another album and that was around the world in a day and yes there's there's a lot of work here on textures and, and, and psychedelic type type music i i wouldn't go so far as to call it i, I don't know. remember the phrase you just, you know his beatles moment or his beatles sort of obsession or beatles album i i, I don't think i'd say that in fact um my, my critique of around the world in a day is that I wish you would have explored that a little bit farther. The longer the album goes on, the less it sort of reflects those first, what, three songs or so that I think sort of make up the the, the core of that. The, if you're going to say it's kind of Beatles esque it's that first, those first few songs. Um, I, I'm really fascinated by this. And I, 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 I don't, I'm not joking about this. I don't know what comes next. <laughs> I'm not, it's like Lepidic with Prince's catalog. I kind of hope that he takes he would take this sound and and see where he could take it in in the next album.
1: There'll be a little bit more of this, but right. it, it's kind of a dead end, I'd say.
0: Uh, it did not sell as well as Purple Rain by by a large margin, although it includes a song that. Everybody knows in Raspberry Beret, but that wasn't two was
1: songs. Everybody knows, uh, I think, uh, two massive hits. pop
0: life, pop life, yeah. So those two, but Raspberry Beret, I think, was is the, is the, is the bigger <laughs> yeah. song. It's, a, it's an older song that goes back uh, a, a ways. This, I wish he would have. I wish he would have taken the, the sound of those first few songs and continued it a little bit further. And I'm not. Uh, I don't think he did it for any reason than he wanted to, right? I'm not saying Prince did something to be more commercial or X or Y. I just. I wish he would have done it a little differently. Those, the the title track, which was, I believe the first track written for the album. It's the first track on the album around the world in in, in a day begins, you know, with open your heart, open your mind. It is not this dirty. Uh, I mean, dirty lyrically, but dirty sounding sort of raw sound that he was getting a few albums uh, earlier. This is brighter and sweeter. Um, and it begins with that title track. And I know Jeff doesn't like uh, Paisley Park all that much. Well, which... No, no, no,
1: no, no. I, that's one I like a okay,
0: lot. I okay, I, I misread there the email. others right? I dislike, yeah. Because I, th- I think Paisley Park is the best thing on the album. Um, yes. uh, Paisley Park is just, it, it's an extremely Beatles melody, right? If you're going to say, oh, he's doing Beatles, all right, yes, I will grant you that in Paisley Park. But it's matched with, you know, this, it, this extremely Beatles melody. With this mechanical, you know, drum loop as he, he's been working with on on the past albums, and then this very active, almost like metal shredding in in the background with the guitar. There are three different things happening at the same time, and yet the way it's arranged and presented, it all makes sense and it sounds wonderful. I think Paisley I think... Park is a huge accomplishment.
1: I also think that you know the bucolic innocence of that song is a real change of pace. Yeah, as you pointed oh, yeah. out this isn't Prince on his like you know sex monster mode or even in his weird visionary mode on Purple Rain. This is like pastoral almost. And remember what a lot of these songs are about guilt mm-hmm. and like your temptation. The latter, where it's like he's being judged by God at the end of the song. The yeah, you're yeah. unworthy. <laughs> you're, like this is, this is like Prince in his regrets mode talking pop life is a song about regrets about like you know living the high life too long yeah you know raspberry beret is about youthful innocence this is the reason i think you like this album and one of the reasons why it does it stays with people and it stays with me too is that it has it a very kind of a fresh-faced approach to it it you just don't get in any other prince album
0: yeah certainly not up to this point i would say no. you mentioned temptation you know the end where you know he realizes love is more important than sex and I got to, I got to go now. I'll return, and it was around this time he he said he was going to end, you know, stop touring and stuff too. So there might be, you guys know this better than I do about the sort of subtext there. But the rest of that song I actually like. I I like Temptation. There's sort of spiky, fuzzy guitar licks, uh, the saxophone squalls. There's a nice piano part in Temptation. Crack. Pop life is a good song. I know Jeff has some some very you know personal thoughts on that considering the time he spent putting together his own personal Hard version of about pop, pop life. life Yes, and I, I like condition of the heart uh, as well. and, yeah. and, and, and it, it's such a delicate Song it reminds me. I'm gonna forget the name of the song uh, way back. I think on on, uh, on, on Prince um, there's a song that that sort of is, is like when this we're switch. dancing slow. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. Thanks, Eli. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's the one. It's just so delicate, and it could be moments from collapse. And he's singing in this very wispy, soft falsetto. It's back on condition of the heart. That reminds me a lot of of that song from from Prince. Prince. Um, I I don't know if it's a truly great album, but I am really fascinated by it, and it's one I would imagine I will return to. In the future to hear again and again
2: first of all I love this record I don't think there's a bad song on it um, here's why it's really interesting to me this is the Wendy and Lisa record this is when he finally sort of like let like he tr- Prince until this point is controlling he is a hundred percent in charge of everything he almost has disdain for his band and he still thinks of himself as a singular kind of artist, and he doesn't really think of himself as somebody with collaborators. Um, but this is the record where Wendy and Lisa and Susanna, who is his lover at the time, and uh, Lisa Coleman's brother David, uh, is a, you know he's a co-, co he he wrote the first draft of Around the World in a Day, introducing. Uh, middle eastern instrumentation to prince and they spend all this time together in this period by the way he he lays down all the tracks for around the world in the day before they go on tour for purple rain but it is such a i think it's a real distinct it's distinct from purple rain and what came before it and and that is because he is accepting lisa and wendy in particular as collaborators and that has I think that has a good effect on Prince and that's why you're getting a different tone. So a song like Condition of the Heart, even though it's musically similar uh to When We're Dancing Close and Slow, there there's a kind of emotional maturity to it that I don't think is there uh on his other ballads at that point.
3: There was a girl in Paris, No.
2: other thing that's really remarkable about this record is that almost every song is distinct and different. Now, the, hmm. on the Beatles-esque thing, it's very interesting because there are quotes from Prince that are ridiculous about how he thinks the Beatles are overrated and he doesn't like the Beatles. And at one point he says, oh, I never heard of the Beatles, which is, of course, he had, you know, Prince <laughs> often said ridiculous things. Um, but they're not. They're Prince one's a-
1: claimed that he never listened to anybody's music except his own, which I think yeah. is hilarious. Right. And, and, and the replacements then fantasized that you know what they could do is they could somehow like, sneak their master tapes into Prince's vaults at Paisley Park and get, <laughs> to listen to their songs, which I thought was a funny little fantasy.
2: Yeah, and so they're not just listening in this period to the Beatles. I mean, there would be these all-night sessions with Prince, Wendy, and Lisa. Susanna sometimes David and they would like listen to Miles Davis they would listen to John Coltrane they would listen to just some of the great geniuses before and I think that that you can sort of you can begin to hear some of that influence on this record um this you know the hits are I mean I think pop life and Raspberry Beret are some of his finest hits but um love condition of the heart um I think America is a super underrated track um, it's wicked kind of funk. It's uh, unclear whether it's a patriotic song or a criticism of America, but that's what makes it super interesting. Um, I like everything on this record. I just think, and there, e- and each song is so distinct, um, and that I, it's an incredible accomplishment coming from something like Purple Rain. What are the? I mean, he again, he could have made another record that would have just been all of the B sides and. Outtake material from Purple Rain and it would have mm-hmm. been great. Um, but he decided to kind of do this very different, a little bit of a left turn, um, and still manages to have two smash hits. And there's a reason why it's it's so beloved. Um, I have I thought a lot about whether this was my set it's not going to be. I mean, they have to pick Purple Rain, but it's right up there for me. And um you know, I, I and I like it in that in the sense that he doesn't there's not another around the world in the day. He Doesn't build on this sound. It sort of he does it and he moves on. We're going to talk in the next episode. Of, we're going to start with Parade, which is a great one. But uh, this is uh, this is this is I think a really brilliant and somewhat underrated record. And um, it speaks to Prince that he wasn't just interested in the hits and the fame. He still he still longed for kind of this recognition as a true artist and I think that that's what is reflected here and I, I really like it I, and, I, and I wish that he'd he'd been a he'd, he'd remained friends and collaborators with Wendy and Lisa that wouldn't last but in this period I think they've had such a great effect on him I should say a little bit about Wendy and Lisa they have um, a unique they, they have a I, I don't want to not use unique but they both are raised by their their fathers are Wrecking Crew musicians from L.A., so they grew up in the business. They grew up among the greats, and they understood. They sort of, you know, they understood music in a way. And I think
1: Prince. They could hang with Prince in a way that, like, you know, a lot of people who aren't taught by pros don't.
2: Exactly, and right. So they're used to it. And there's also something like I think Prince kind of like needed them, uh, and their influence in this period. And that's why I love it. I mean, it, it 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 is a testament to that friendship. Between you know Wendy and Lisa and Prince and you know their sort of extended family, so I, I really love this record, um, and I you know I, I, I again like the, we all know the hits, but I you know Condition of the Heart, America, Love the latter you know it's it's the whole thing is great. You know
1: I actually do want to focus on those two hit singles from this record because ironically enough, even though I think the ballads on this let me down. Um, Those two may be two of my favorite Prince songs of all time and, in fact, maybe two of my favorite songs of the entire 1980s. I made a decision that only one of them could make my top five at the end and (laughs) choosing was just like choosing between children. It was the most painful thing in the world. The first one, of course, I'm talking about is Pop Life. This is the one that's actually an outtake from the late Purple uh, Rain era. Uh, It was almost done by the time the album was done. Theoretically, could have gone on the album, but Prince decided to hold off on it, and with good reason, because it's you know it ended up becoming an anchor on the next record. But you know the thing about this, this song is is actually a really beautiful meditation on stardom. This is this is Prince, I guess, in a reflective mode. You know, what's that line about what you're putting in your nose? Is that mm-hmm. where all your money goes? Mm-hmm. The river of addiction flows. You think it's hot, but there won't be no water when the fire blows. Basically, the fires of hell. You won't have anything to drink back when you're down there, my friend. You're up here living the pop life, but uh, you know one day you're gonna be down on the bottom again.
3: What you doing in your life?
1: That, that melody, and I love the piano underpinning, that, that piano chord change. But what always kills me is that nobody really knows the, the true glory of this song, because the true glory of this song is found on its original version. What you hear on around the world in the day is an edit. The full, a 12-inch single version, the master, the original master, is like nine minutes long, and it features like a good four and a half minutes of Prince just letting loose on piano, showing you every single thing Prince Rogers Nelson is capable of doing at a keyboard and it is some of the most insane Key, piano performance that I've ever heard In any rock song I'll put it up there with Genesis or Emerson Lake and Palmer Obviously a completely different kind of sound This is bluesy and funky But it's some of the most beautiful And ostentatious show-off music That he ever recorded And you know what, unless you went it together And spliced the all the various bits From the European and American 12-inch mixes together You'll never nobody hear would, full master Nobody would take. do that Nobody would do that, only a weirdo would do that kind of a thing Uh, But God, I love it so much.
2: Thank you so much for that, because I had not heard the full version before, and wow, it's yeah. revelatory. You only hear like literally one-third of
1: the song is on the album. There's two-thirds of it left on, including extra verses, a whole thing where they sing like Frere Jaca. Yes. Wendy Elisa yeah. do Frere yeah. Jaca in the background, and then it just goes into Prince, just do like piano variations until the end. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Of course, the other song up is Raspberry Beret. Is this the greatest Prince song of all time? Gosh, I think it could be. It's certainly one of the most beautifully winsome songs. And, of course, there it's Prince, so it's about sex. It's about losing your virginity. It's about seeing that girl. But it's also one of my favorite and most like telling. I think it's the best lyric that Prince ever wrote, I would say, because it paints such a perfect image of who that person is and where they are. What does he said, I was working part-time at a five-and-dime my boss was Mr. McGee, and you know that lazy summer job that he has. He told me several kinds that he didn't like my kind because I was a bit too leisurely. And then, well, what happens? That girl walks in. <clears throat> That's when I saw her. She walked in through the outdoor, outdoor. And then you hear the trill of the violins in the background, and then that beautiful chorus. The Raspberry Beret, you know, and if it was warm, she wouldn't wear much more. She's a a knowing woman who's going to teach this little guy a little something about the world. Built like she was, she had the nerve to ask if I planned to do her any harm. Oh, it's such a great song. Overcast days never turned me on, but something about the clouds and her mixed. And of course, as much as those beautiful verses and choruses are, as beautiful as, as they are, it's the middle eight that kills me every single time. When it when the, the violins do that do 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 that is the moment where he most perfectly captures the spirit of the Beatles in nineteen sixty seven. That that that, that free floating sense of melody unmoored to any you know, any restrictions whatsoever, but actually improves upon it. I think that's a better song than anything on Sgt. Pepper's group. Uh, well, maybe a day in the life. I'll grant you that. With a little help, they compete. I'll take anything else. <clears throat> I'll take Raspberry Beret over it. I like the song that much. Yeah, and... I
2: mean, you can't argue. You just Why?
1: acted like I like—I like, insulted your mother,
2: Eli.
3: Huh, no,
1: no, no,
2: no, 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 I, no. I, I agree with you that Raspberry Beret is incredible. <laughs> um, And I'm also of the view that Sgt. Pepper is like, you know, the fourth or fifth best Beatles record. so.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's about right. Fourth, I'd yeah. probably put it put it around fourth. But anyways, I love that song so much. And it is, you know, I don't know if, if this is the place that you end or, you know, do you, do you have a couple other B-sides you want to talk about? Because this is kind of a dead end for Prince. And I think what he's about to do now, as I said, he gathers his forces. He comes to a kind of a climax. You have 1999. You have Purple Rain. And then Around the World in the Day seems like he was kind of like, you know, stalling for time. And then Parade also feels like well Wes we'll talk about it when we begin our next episode. He goes through like a whole series of like, you know, like you know, second guessing himself about well, what am I gonna put out this album or this album until he comes up with parade. And that leads to another climax, which I guess is gonna be the focus of our second episode. Yeah.
2: I mean the only other thing I'd say about Around the World in the Day is that for this entire period, Prince def- sort of had a rule. I'm not going to have a horn section because I am such a master of the synthesizer. And the synths are going to be my horn section. And he finally relented <laughs> and let Alan Leeds' brother, Eric Leeds, who was a sax player, into the band. And around the world in the day is the first Prince record that has uh, brass on it in Cambridge not by no means the last but it's th- yep. that's another important kind of transition um but i don't think of it as i don't think of it as stagnation i think it's definitely a left turn but a brilliant left turn uh-huh and he needed to do this in some ways so i think it and actually and it it i think it, it helped mature him i'm i'm grateful i love the sort of incredibly horny sex maniac prince <laughs> that we're getting, you know, from Dirty Mind, you know, through 1999. But this is representing a sort of maturity, and I think he needed to kind of take this left turn in order to give us the like, truly ecstatic spiritual love ballads like Adore and things like that that we're going to hear on Side of the Times later. So I think it is an important part of his process, and in that respect, I do think it's, it's – it's, and this is – it's an imperial period for a reason, and this is why I think Around the World of the Day really is an essential one for, for Prince.
1: Oh, man, I can't wait for part two. I think it's hilarious that Scott hasn't even listened to most of this stuff yet. Scott, you're going to have a fun time. I hope so. I know uh, so. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty certain you will. Uh, but I guess that brings us to the end. Yeah. yeah,
0: part of the program where we give you the two albums you should own for wow, this period so of Prince's career hard. and the five songs <laughs> that you must hear from these years of early Prince. And we begin with our guest, Eli Lake, contributing editor of Commentary, back again for a second time with us on Prince. Eli, your two albums and your five songs, please.
2: Asia and Katie Lied. Just kidding. That was from the first episode. Anyway. Wrong notes. Um, uh, Well, obviously, I have to say it's Purple Rain is one of them. And 1999 is going to be my other one. I could have just as easily picked Dirty Mind. I could have just as easily picked Around the World a Day, and on some days I would have maybe even picked Controversy, too. But it's 1999 and Purple Rain. Those are pretty conventional picks. I think they speak for themselves. My songs. I'm going to start from Prince Prince, The Closer. It's going to be Lonely. That one is overlooked for some reason. Is one of my favorite Prince songs. Uh, I I can't say enough about it. I'm going to move. My second one is going to be Private Joy from Controversy. Uh, I We talked about it earlier, but, um, I mean, the other thing about that is the vocal arrangements and how his, he manages to get versions of his voice into that one long note in the chorus of that. And, you know, everything about that song, revolutionary. Brilliant. Um, okay, this is hard. Because I if I... Like, how could you not include Head? But on the other hand, I'm going to pick, if I'm going to pick like one just Slayer funk track, I got to say it's DMSR. So my third will be DMSR, Dance, Music, Sex, Romance. We all know, uh, we talked about it before in 1999, it's just some of the funkiest music ever made. Um, The Beautiful Ones off of Purple Rain, uh, for me, you know, that's just one of the greatest songs ever made. And then for my fifth song, uh, it's a sort of a nod to Jeff, because I've always loved Pop Life. But when you listen to the full version of it, you cannot help but be in awe. And I, I, I would say Pop Life would be my fifth song. That was very difficult. And there are 20 other songs I could have chosen that are just as brilliant because Prince is just... That magnificent of an artist
0: all right so my two albums will be the, the self-titled Prince album is second not the debut but the second album self-titled and 1999 and those are the two albums I would uh, recommend and uh, again from a uh, from someone who hadn't heard a, a lot of this music before some five songs that might entice you to find more uh, what'll be your lover is on the list. Uh, Dirty Mind, the title track from Dirty Mind. Um, You know what? Controversy, I'll throw on here as uh, the first track from that record. And I was going to, made in Little Red Corvette. Essentially, everyone's heard Little Red Corvette. So if you're new to Prince like I am, we'll go a little deeper. Uh, Let's Pretend We're Married from 1999. And then Paisley Park from Around the World in a Day. And those would be my five songs. Jeff, over to you.
1: All right. So I, you know, in the hopes of trying to make this manageable, I set myself a little rule, and I'll try to keep this through all three episodes, where I will recommend two albums, and then my five songs will come from other albums. Oh, that is a good rule. Yeah. So my two albums will be Dirty Mind and Purple Rain. I think they're both pretty much perfect. Dirty Mind is just diamond hard perfect, 30, 32 minutes. There's not a second on it that shouldn't be there. In that sense, it really doesn't even make sense to to distinguish one song or another from it. The whole thing needs to be heard. Purple Rain, it's freaking Purple Rain. What business do you have even listening to this podcast and not having Purple Rain, for crying out loud? My five songs. I'll start with Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad off of the Prince album, uh, just because I think it's one of his most fantastic guitar moments of all time. And it's just right up front him announcing that I am not an R&B artist. Keep me out of your boxes. I'll play rock and roll. I'll play pop. I'll play anything I want to play and do it as good as anybody has done it. Second one I choose is Annie Christian from Controversy, which I otherwise think is a bit of a treading water album, but that one's the sound of the future. And I, I really like the, the the weird chord changes and the forward looking uh, aspect of it is replicated on my next pick, which is something in the water does not compute from 1999. Prince had his weirdest and most uh, sort of science fictiony and, uh, Definitely a part of his, an aspect of his personality and his music that is is underappreciated. I'll take another pick from 99. I'll say it's Let's Pretend We're Married. Scott also picked it. It's a great song for all the reasons we discussed. And I guess I'll end with Raspberry Beret. I had to choose one of my two favorite children. And since Eli picked Pop Life, it made it easier for me to pick Raspberry Beret. God, it's such a beautiful song. Also happens to be my wife's favorite Prince song of all time and hey, you know what? I get to cheat because I'm the host. Ha ha. I'll pick an outtake for a sixth track, and I'll end with For the Tears in Your Eyes, which I think is obviously you want to hear it in that, that live for MTV performance version on the hits B-side set. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Prince was right to duck out of We Are the World, and <laughs> it's hilarious that people don't give credit for giving them a much better
3: song. Less than the tears in your eyes
0: There we go. The end of part one of the political beats. Look at the music and career of Prince. We thank Eli Lake contributing editor commentary fellow with the Clement Center at UT Austin host of a new podcast debuting very soon on the nebulous network called the Reeducation" with Eli Lake. You can find him on Twitter at Eli Lake. Eli, thanks for joining us. We look forward to part two. Jeff, we're one third, one third of the way through. This Prince Trilogy, you have designed this as a, uh, uh, as a three-parter, so we look forward to coming back, doing part two.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, t- next time, we are going to find out what it's like in the Dream
0: Factory. Mm-hmm. Find Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. I'm there, too, at Scott Bertram. Go over to Patreon.com slash Political Beats, and, well, help us, support us. We get bonuses, too, if you take part, entry-level and support and voting, and mid-level for early access and audio quality higher quality and that our upper level best friends are there too at patreon.com slash political beats and we're at the part of the program where we thank some of our patreon supporters individually for their support and help keeping the show ad free and just saying hey scott and jeff nice job we like your thing do great podcast you know we get messages thank you eric Cohn, adam wickens steve lewis robert hawk nick Stolty, trung doan Luke Harvey, Mark Bogdansky, Darren Henney, Mark Van Osdal, and Robert Newton. Thank you and everyone else for supporting us over at patreon.com slash political beats. Subscribe to the feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tune in or write at nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook and join the conversation on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is is Political Beats.